M. Eight. H. Nine. Four. Three. D. M. Eight. H. Nine. Four. Three. You have said to me one time, one of my favorite articulations I've ever heard, and I'm not, it's always weird to try to get, like, quote someone and then get them to say the quote, but you described the difference between designing for a skateboard and making a painting as, like, the equivalent of making a skateboard or making a product is sort of like designing for junk food versus fine, <laughs> fine meal. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't remember exactly what I said. Um, it was, it resonated for me as someone who can, who does quote unquote does both. I, I was like, wow, it's really a beautiful articulation. Well, I just think they're, they're different. They're just different types of sustenance, you know? So yeah. like, I love snacking and I love snacks and I love junk food and I kind of like view like designing like clothes or making gra or like, you know, making graphics specifically, you know, as something that's more like a snack or like junk food for me. So it's something that I r honestly really love and it's super important for me to like do that and like ingest that, you know, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, I also think that there are like, you know, deeper there's like, you know, deeper avenues to, maybe that's not the best way to say it. I think there are also just like frequencies that are different than that, that I'm also very interested in that take a, you know, that take a different type of sustenance that is a lot harder to, you know, for me at least, it's a lot harder to like cook and you have to know like several different ingredients and like the meal takes a long time to prepare and mm -hmm. it's also like a way more you know sustaining and there's a there's like a lot of different nutrients in it and that doesn't discount junk food uh, or mm -hmm. in this case you know junk food in parentheses like graphics but mm -hmm. like uh you know they're just <laughs> different and i like both of them uh immensely you know i love doing both of those i love both junk food and um you know, like uh, like three-course dinner. Um, mm -hmm. I love them both. I love a three-course dinner at a friend's house that's cooked with love, and I also love a zebra cake that was processed in the same facility that, like, pig hooves might have been processed. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, um, yeah, I think they're both, like, they're, you know, they're both important to me, and they're, I think they're both important to a lot of people, and they give me, like, you know, different types of sustenance, but at the end of the day, it's it's sustenance either way, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I love I love that way of thinking about it. I also want to say that you you said it a little more elegantly when you said snack food a minute ago, and I said junk food. And I think that that is sort of telling that I said junk food, but I but that's fucked up because snack food is more, um, yeah. I guess, junk I food know. too. The both of them. You know, then we could even go another layer and be like, junk food is when you just, which you know, hot take maybe, but junk food is when you just take something else that already existed that you didn't even make. That's just like a graphic someone else made, and then you just like tweak it one notch of the dial, and you're like, cool, that's mine. I made it. Like that's the junk food of it. But it's also super important and fun. Yeah. That take was hot. Did you yeah, but the junk food is when you is when you take the already <laughs> processed idea that someone else came up with and then you just put like a little bit of icing on it and you're like cool this is you know it's like it's like like adding peanut butter to a Swiss roll and then being like this is I cooked this. <laughs>
Now, would I do that? Absolutely, I've absolutely done that. But like, is it is it is it is it like you know is it the same thing as cooking the three course meal? No, it, it's really not. We're not going to conflate the two. It's just different. I cooked it. <laughs> what have you been getting to work on art stuff during in the I, last little bit? You know, it's been uh, it's been it's it's been. I've, it's been a difficult journey. Um, you know, I think um, I was actually talking to Matt about this because I was asking Matt, Matt Hilvers. Yeah, I was asking Matt Hilvers what he had been working on, and he was talking a little bit about some stuff he'd been working on, and was also saying like, you know, like I'm also like just trying to just just let things be to a certain degree, and I think that's super important, you know, and especially right now, it's like there's always that over, you know, there's always that sort of like hanging over there hanging over you there's always that like notion or at least for me I shouldn't say you I should say me hanging over me there's always that notion that I can be more productive and do more things and uh that my output could be, could have more quantity and I've been trying to like focus more on actually just like the the like quality of what I'm doing from my for my own standards and not so much thinking about like I have to make you know, I need to make more paintings because I haven't made enough paintings, you know, in quote, and instead being more, you know, in tune with my intuitive process and be more, um, like we were saying in the beginning, just being more gentle during this time because, you know, there's just not really room in my brain to be processing and going through all of the things that I, that I and we are collectively going through and then also be having, like, that gnawing thing in the back of my brain telling me that I need to be, like, more productive it's just like not something that's conducive to making anything for me right now so my process has been it's been interesting and very different than what i'm used to but i also think it's yielded a lot of a lot of you know like it's yielded a lot of results um like you know like physical tangible results that like i don't you know in in avenues and on frequencies i don't think i would normally operate it on if I was still on the, like, you know, the, if I was still running on the treadmill that I was previously on creatively. Yeah. And the treadmills are different. At different times, it's interesting to, like, hop on the treadmill for a little bit. Yeah, for sure, because exercise is important, you know. So it's important to, like, exercise (laughs) and to do this, to do the same exercise, you know what I mean, every day for whatever amount of time, you know, or, like, at a, like, weekly schedule, you know, to keep the, you know, juices flowing and keep things, you know, uh, tight. But at the same time, sometimes, you know, you just get bored and you're like, I can't go to the gym like this anymore. I need to figure out a different type of exercise. And you're like, maybe I should just like run as far as I can today. Yeah. So I think I've been kind of thinking thinking about things. I've just been thinking about like, you know, the like just interconnectivity of, you know, in the same way that we're like comparing, you know, different types of like mediums and different types of creating as like food you know i've been thinking about the different types of sustenance that like creativity or that creative you know endeavors and a creative output like yields for you but also thinking about the interconnectivity of all things and that there's always um there's always a new or different way to approach the same thing that you were doing Mm -hmm. because running on a treadmill and running you know three miles down my street are the same 
idea. It's both just running, but it's like how you go about how you go about the exercise yields a different output and also looks different. So, yeah, I've been trying to think about what are what are different ways within like my own visual language that I can build something that is new and refreshing for me and hopefully for someone else and just a, a different take on the same thing that I've already been doing and the same like systems I've already built, but just a new way to operate it. Word. Word. If you that were, made sense, I might have rambled a little bit, but no, that makes a lot of sense. And I really, I, that resonate, that is really resonant for me in my working experience. And especially like over the course of the last year, I totally relate. I think that would be resonant for a lot of people. I think a lot of people have really struggled with that idea. I mean, you, you, you clarified that you weren't speaking for everyone. You're speaking for yourself, but it's something that I've heard a lot of people echo who are, you know, making quote-unquote art or not making art or doing anything you know just the idea of like the pressure like oh shit this is quarantine time i need to like learn this skill or do this thing or there's all this pressure to like produce or generate or accomplish things during this time and yeah and that's just really a you know that's a a seed a capitalist seed in in our minds that's been planted for as long as we've all been alive, you know, is that like, is that like we are valuable, we are valuable because we produce and because there is a large quantity of production and because we continue to produce and that's what makes us valid and valuable. And I'm just, you know, we are, I think a lot of people, especially anyone on the same frequency as you or I is, uh, is probably constantly having to, you know, deal with that and unpack that. Yeah. And I think this year, more than ever, people are really, you know, realizing that because I also, now that I'm like looking back at it, before we even went into lockdown and quarantine happened, I was feeling pretty like exhausted by the like production of everything. You know, I was feeling pretty exhausted, but I didn't even have the space or time to even like acknowledge that for myself. I was just still like in the state of production with like, I, you know, I got this grant and now I'm in the studio. So I'm in the studio and I have to make the stuff and I got to be doing it every day. And, and I think in a, you know, in like a, and I don't mean to be like overtly, you know, like one of those like overtly PMA people, but like there was a certain type of, there is a certain type of gratitude I feel for being made to sit down collectively and really think about our, you know, like modes and systems that we're using and if it's benefiting us truly. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, through 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 that, like, sort of sit-down, initial sit-down process, I, you know, kind of came to terms with, like, you know, some of, the, some of this, like, some of these things, these structures that I've built are, like, pretty wobbly, and I don't, I don't necessarily think they serve me or anyone else, really. They're kind of just, like, here. Uh-huh. The things that you feel like aren't serving you, you're starting to see around them now, or you're starting to see other ways. Yeah, or just like ways that we can break them down and rebuild them in a diff- in a different way that's that's feels that feels better or feels more authentic or feels more useful, you know. Yeah. I mean like, you know, there is no wrong way to make the work. Yeah. And that's something I've been trying to tell myself a lot lately is like, you know, I I create such like, you know, I create I am a person who creates often like very rigid rules for myself and then like through the use of the rules, I break them down and like break the rules. Cause like a lot of times when I, when I was 
you know, painting with a fervor. Uh, I definitely told myself, like, these are the rules for this painting. And then towards the end, I, I would start breaking the rules. But in order to get to the point of breaking the rules, I would keep the rules in place. And then I think the more that you do that, start to realize, like, what, you know, rules or parameters you put around your own, like, process and your own practice, which ones actually do serve you and benefit you in a positive way and which ones are kind of just, like, you know, unnecessary. And, um, yeah, I've been, I think, just trying to be more in tune with the intuitive process in the present moment Mm -hmm. and also in like in like a what i what i kind of think of as like an an intense like very future based planning and then kind of like trying to mesh those two things of like some like essentially like you know especially with lockdown and sort of things seemingly like you know Oh, how, I'm trying to think of what the, what's the best way to say this. I think by being made to to be so still, mm-hmm. I was I was able to sort of like recalibrate in a certain way, and then also through the recalibration that made me look through a look differently, or you know from from a different point of view, or you know sort of look at like my own practice and my own output and then be able to say, like I said, like some of these structures I don't think really serve me. So, you know, maybe we should break these down and like remake them into something else. And then sort of like, you know, as a, as a means of being able to like have something to look forward to, I think I've really, for the, for the first time in a long time, cause I've never really been like a huge future planner. I've always kind of been like a, I've always kind of been more reliant on like looking into the past and then using things from the past in order to create something presently. And Mm -hmm. I've been a lot more interested in like, what is like the utopic ideal for me? Wow. Or like my, for like the future and for like my future and the future I want to see just generally outside of myself. And like, you know, through that process, I was like really reminded of like, you know, that quote from, from that I can't remember who said it, but that I found in a Phoebe Glockner, you know, graphic memoir, that success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time, you know, when, when that was coming to me and also when, like, lockdown was happening and I was forced to, like, really sit or, like, rethink a lot of, like, the systems that I was, like, within and using, mm-hmm. you know, it, it made me, you know, realize that, like, there is there you know when you're exhausted of something it's like you can always rework it and rethink it and come out with something new uh instead of feeling like you have like you have to create the same thing that you've been making or the same work that looks the same as what you previously made you know in order to like meet some sort of quota and so i had i had been telling myself a lot through the past year and through that process that you know it's primarily about building a visual language and that within that notion, there is no wrong way to make the work. So right. I've been telling myself often that like things, you know, because I had made these rigid rules for myself, I've been telling myself that like certain things were off limits or weren't a part of my practice or like were not something that I was able to access. And I think once I realized or that, or I thought that it wouldn't be, it wasn't 
something I would view as a success when I was finished with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so once I realized that success, that success is just the progressive realization of a worthy ideal and that there is no wrong way to make the work and that the revelation of the law is revealed through the law itself, that really the practice is, the practice is what the artwork is. It's not even really what comes out on the other end. It's not really the finite, you know, the finite piece that ends up being created. It's really the process. Yeah. And then, yeah. I mean, in tandem with skating, when what we were speaking on in terms of skating earlier is that, like, there, there's, it's more about the space existing because people are tired of seeing the same thing, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so then if you're committing yourself to this, to this ideal and, like, if your utopic ideal is just to continue to create the same thing, you know, over and over again, which is essentially a, like, byproduct of capital brainwashing that, like, if something works, you just create more of that and you create it and create it and create it until there's no more demand, essentially, you know? Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't really, like, resonate with me or, like, work for me and I think it doesn't work for a lot of people and I think uh-huh. the current state of the world is is forcing people to reflect on that and to decide like I said that I was doing within my own you know like realm it's like it's making people rethink the structures that are in place and then finding ways to break them down in order to in order to progress yes collectively and individually yeah. I know it I yeah, to think about what 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 is getting what people are having to figure out right now. It's going to be it, I can't even imagine what looking back we're going to what revelations we will trace back to this time, you know? Exactly. I yeah. It's like it's like breathtaking. I'm grateful for um, well articulated revelations like you shared because that's. I'm grateful for your laugh. You have a great laugh. <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's nice. It's generous. You have told me previously that I guess I'm I I want to ask you about um, the visual work that I'm familiar with. You making you know the like ob- art object work is it's like drawing painting based it seems like to me and I feel like I have I have not ever gotten to see any of it in person but I feel like I have a sense of a visual language of yours have drawing painting kind of like hand works been important to your existence for a long time you told me about like when you first moved to New York and you were living in a place hmm, and you, you know all night it was a, you know, it's it's been like a, it's been a long journey. I didn't really receive a lot of like, a lot of like support or validation, mm-hmm. like through the systems I was in as a kid, you know, through school or anything like for art for like mm-hmm. a very long time. Like, so I never really thought so much about like, you know, about painting and drawing or just like visual art in that way being important to me or something that I wanted to do or was ever going to do really for a long time. I was actually super, super involved in like acting as a kid. I was in like plays a lot when I was, even in high school, I was in like musicals. I was like a, you know, I was, I was literally textbook closeted theater kid when I was in high school for sure. Uh Not totally a theater kid, but I was like in theater and like doing plays. And that was like 
kind of like the outlet for me because it sort of was more in line with skating because I liked the performance aspect of skating. I liked the performance aspect of being on stage. But, yeah, yeah, I think I just, you know, at the time when I was younger, I didn't think about it so much because I didn't have, you know, it's super important for kids to have support to validate that they're going, that something that they're doing is, is valuable and is something that they should continue doing. And I just didn't really have that support within like school systems or anything for art. And so it wasn't until like I was a little bit older that like, you know, I started, I was skating and then, you know, with skating, there's a lot of like art that orbits skating and artists that orbit skating. And so, you know, I would meet people, you know, I, you know, first initially, like when I was in high school, I met like a lot of like writers and then I was like hanging out with kids who like, and older people who like did graffiti and I skated and then like that got me into sort of like drawing loosely, but it was mostly kind of like, you know, like I would just emulate, you know, on paper, like something that I already had seen or that like somebody had like, uh, like style someone had like shown me that I could do you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I don't think it was until I was like a little bit older that I started really you know kind of like diving into like you know what 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 was within me that were think that were ideas or like you know um like things visually that I wanted to like portray that I felt like were inside of me or that like needed to come out you know and I think at the beginning it's like when I really started like committing to like visual to to art as a practice and firstly to like you know it was firstly to painting you know like to painting as a practice Mm -hmm. you know I was living I was living in Detroit and you know I had kind of you know I took I you know I liked taking photos of stuff and would like you know I was making skate videos with friends so I would like contribute visually to like what the art inside of the videos looked like Mm -hmm. but you know it, I wasn't really like it wasn't anything that was my own. It was like you know mostly collaborative, and I think it was when I started like you know I was living in Detroit and I was renting a building with a friend of mine, and we paid six hundred dollars for like a three floor building. And my friend lived in the basement, wow. had a screen printing shop in the basement, and he was really big into the like you know, he was really big into grindcore and really big into, like, the punk scene there. And, like, you know, I was skating and, like, you know, am adjacent in that way. So, like, you know, we would do shows there. And so it was, like, a full venue. You know what I mean? The first floor was, like, a full venue. We had a stage. There was, like, shows that we would do there. He did screen printing in the basement. And then I lived upstairs. And I was just skating all the time, you know. But, like, we were literally allowed to do whatever we wanted there because we kind of had to, like, ask for forgiveness, not permission policy that we had sort of come up with with our Korean landlord who was super sweet. And we would just build stuff out. And then she would eventually show up sometimes to, like, check on us. And we'd be like, oh, we kind of, like, painted the whole first floor and, like, put in a wall and built a bathroom. And she would be like, oh, looks great. And we'd be like, okay. Like, she clearly doesn't care. So, you know, I was kind of, I was going through, like, a pretty heavy, like, reflection period at that time, and I was, like, you know, really trying to, like, look within myself to see, you know, to, like, to find out who I was. And so I was painting a lot just, like, on the walls there because I had a lot of leftover paint from painting the room because I had picked, like, a few different colors and was, like, painting the trims and stuff. You know, I was really, I was getting my Martha Stewart on pretty heavy. So, <laughs> and how old were you then? 22 I want to say okay great time yeah so you know I had I had like some sort of like 
you know, I had been, I had made zines with like draw, with like just like little, you know, like little drawings in it, but mostly I'd made zines with a lot of like photos and writing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and then it was just kind of like, I had gotten to the point where I had sort of reached my like peak with that as like a medium for me. Like I didn't really have any more like output to give in terms of like, you know, taking photos and it just wasn't really interesting to me anymore in the way that it previously was. And so I just, you know, would just get bored. I mean, also like full disclosure at the time, it's like I had a a friend, I I had a friend who would just give me like copious amounts of weed. And at the time (laughs) I was just like, you know, I really just had like not a lot to do aside from just like work at this restaurant I was working at and going skating and then just like reflecting. And I also just, at the time, really, like, I think wanted to spend a lot of time, I needed to and wanted to spend a lot of time alone. So I would literally just, like, smoke a bunch of weed that my friend had given me. And then at a certain point, that was also boring, you know. And then I was just like, well, what do I do? Like, I'm just, like, bored. And so I just started painting a lot and just paint directly onto the walls. And um, what's funny is actually one of the first things I painted is I just painted, was painting words on the wall because I was, I liked writing and I wrote a lot and uh, I just painted the thought of the thought of failure is thrilling, uh-huh. <laughs> which I think was like helpful for me to like, you know, I, it's one of the first things I ended up painting on that wall. And I think it was helpful for me to like, you know, tell myself that, you know, there, you know, it's so it's okay to like try something new, you know, essentially. Yeah. So yeah, I just started painting a lot and then right before, and then I was coming and visiting New York and I, I you know, I was, Thing. What's funny is, in hindsight, and I think we might have talked about this before, but um, I was coming here to visit my friend Chris because um, he lived in Arizona. I previously lived in Arizona, and we were trying to meet up here in New York. And he told me to come visit, and so oh, yeah. like I'm coming. <laughs> Chris, no, so I'm coming to visit. I'm coming to visit Chris, and then uh-huh. you know, and once I show up, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you can stay with my friends. Like my friends here, you can stay stay with him." And I was like, "Oh, amazing!" And then I show up, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna go." downstairs and tell them that you're like here and you're going to stay i was like wait what do you mean you haven't told them that i'm like staying here and he's like oh no i didn't tell him i was like fuck man like and so you know i was like oh man i'm screwed like i'm here and i don't have anywhere to stay or whatever but the funny thing is like there was a a a few people that lived there at the time um but like you know i uh i met ben cato who was Uh living there at the time and him and I really, like, you know, hit it off. And also, like, Stu was living there with him. And then, you know, Jesse, I think, lived there, too. And I I think Cruz might have, like, lived there. I think Cruz lived there, too. But, like, in part, like, he wasn't there all the time. So, like, there was a lot of people living there and people in and out. And so, like, you know, I ended up staying there. And then, in hindsight, it was super funny because later on we talked about it. And they were like, oh, yeah, we, like knew you from YouTube because everybody knew each other from YouTube if you skated uh-huh. in some way. Uh-huh. Like, you've seen people's videos on YouTube. You know, and they're like, oh, we knew who you were from YouTube, from, like, Chris's YouTube and shit and, like, your video parts. And so we were – at first we were kind of, like, pissed, and then we were like, oh, wait, it's, it's like, that person? Like, oh, I'm actually down to see, like, what happens and, like, see if they're <laughs> cool. And so we ended up all, like, you know, liking each other and getting along. And I came to visit a few other times because I was kind of just, like, reaching, like, critical mass uh, at – in Detroit with like what I was doing there and they were, you know, Ben and Ben was just kind of like, well, if you wanted to live here, I can like, you know, I'll, I'll pretty sure it's fine, but I'll just ask everybody if you're like really like just ready to like leave Detroit, like you should just move here and like you could just sleep on the couch until you find an apartment. And so I literally just went back, packed up all my shit and then just got a like, you know, actually I think what I did is I 
drove to I drove my friend's van to Arizona because he was moving to Arizona from Detroit, and so I helped him pack up and I drove his van to Arizona, and then I got a flight from Arizona with all my with all my like shit in one suitcase. I got a flight to Arizona or from Arizona to New York. But what's what's super funny is I was at the airport and my suitcase was too heavy, oh, and wow. um, yeah, and they they told me I had to like you know, get rid of some stuff. And she was being, the lady was like being super stern. And I was like, okay. And so then I went over to the trash can and I'm literally just taking stuff out of the suitcase and like throwing it away. And like, I'm like, I like kind of like crying because I'm like throwing away like my only belongings basically. Oh my God. And this lady comes up to me and she's like, she's like, she's like, baby, what are you doing? And I was like, I was like, you said my suitcase is too heavy. I'm, I'm like making it lighter. I have to throw stuff away. And she's like, don't you have somebody to call to come pick up the stuff? And I was just like, no. I was like, my friend already who dropped me off already left. Like, there, I was like, I'm not coming back here. Like, there's no yeah. one for me to call to, like, give the stuff to. And she was like, you know what? She's like, no, put this, put it back in the suitcase. I'd already thrown away so many things. But she's like, put it back in the suitcase. She started, like, putting my shit off the floor back in the suitcase, zipped it up. And she was just like, we're just, she's like, we're just going to, we're just going to say it's uh, overweight and that's that. And she literally just put it on the belt, you know, and just, oh my God. and just didn't weigh it and put it on the belt and put like an overweight ta- tag on it and just like, let it go. And I was like, Oh, that's amazing. But yeah. So then when I, but right before I moved here, I, uh, I had like a minor injury from skating. Uh-huh. And so like the day before I moved here, I like got hurt and I was like, Oh shit, I'm hurt. But you know, anything like super serious, but I was hurt enough where like, I couldn't really skate. And so when I moved here, you know, I like, you know, showed up at, you know, Ben and Stu's apartment and then stayed there for like a month and then found like a just like sort of cutty like Craigslist sublet. And I was kind of like breaded at the time because I was living in Detroit and paying like basically no money for rent and was working at a like relatively popular restaurant and bar. And I just had like a bunch of money saved on accident, you know. Uh And, um, And so I literally just didn't for like probably six months, I didn't do hardly anything like work wise. I did not work. I literally just painted at home. And wow. so, uh, and I couldn't skate for like a, those first few months. And then it was winter. Wow. And so, like, I skated some during that winter, but, you know, I was just like painting a lot. And um, I when think I was close. This was like 2000, I want to say 2014. Okay. Or, yeah. So I was, I was painting basically every day. And that was like really you know, at the time I was like processing through a lot of things. And so it was like really therapeutic for me to like make art around my experience. And so, Uh you know, I was, those were like, you know, early days of me just sort of like intuitively building a visual language and sort of like insert my own like narrative into the visual language and then sort of taking like an image of like, you know, a memory and then sort of like reducing it to the most basic components that I could in order to like, tell the story for myself Mm -hmm. and um yeah i think that's kind of like how it really started you know fully taking effect for me that like this was something that was important to me and that i was committed to and that like was uh necessary for me to like move forward in life but also like just necessary for me to like you know stay alive at the time yeah it's it was something that you found you found was there for you yeah, for sure. So, you know, it was very, you know, it was initially started just kind of like, you know, a therapeutic practice for me. And um, as I, you know, built out a visual language for myself, I think it, you know, kind of like created its own, you know, like bones and could like, you know, sort of like walk and talk by itself without me 
being there. Do you feel like during that time you started to identify as an artist? Um, that's not a weird, really. That's kind of a random question. I don't know if you even. I think I think I think an artist is something that people identify is not necessarily something you identify as, but and this might be a hot take, but I think an art being an artist is something that people identify within you, and it's not necessarily something that you identify. Because oftentimes I feel like the people who who like if someone tells me if someone says like I'm an artist, sometimes that's kind of like off putting to me. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. And I don't know if that's like, you know, that might be, there might be something there that I need to unpack that's like my own, you know what I mean? Like that's not even about other people. But yeah, I've, I kind of always thought that like that was something that people sort of identified you as and not necessarily something that you had to identify for yourself. I definitely never, yeah. I There were times where I was living off of art and I would travel internationally to go do like an art show or an art fair in another country. And I remember on customs forms and things like that, never wanting to put art. I never would list artists because I was like, I'm going to get so mistreated justifiably if I'm like <laughs> announcing myself as an artist. Like, I'm going to Are you familiar my- much with Genesis Peorage? Oh, rest in paradise. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Gen- <laughs> Genesis Peorage said something in an interview, and I think this is like something that other people probably even like use now that like mm-hmm. I believe like came from you know, that from Psychic TV and, like, from Genesis. Yeah. Um, but but said that um, I'm a I'm a cultural engineer. That's right. Like, I'm, I'm interested in cultural engineering. And I, that always kind of, like, resonated with me, and I thought that was, like, a super important, like, statement for someone to make, you know? And I... Really you true know, them. Yeah, really true. And I think that that's, like, you know, an important just like an important statement and I don't even necessarily know if like that is me but I just felt like that was something that like resonated with me and I think that that kind of like language aside from just you know like stamping stamping someone as an artist I think is is maybe like more interesting for me to like hear and think about 100% and I think that that speaks to feeling like the value of like that goes along with interrogating what your utopian vision is and what does it include and looking at that in like an open way, you know, and not just like, oh, I, for my art career, I really want to have like, you know, the painting show at this place. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah, which is like the people who want that and who that is their like, you know, that's, that is their like vision of success and their like goal. And yeah. for them, that's, you know, if that's what they're, you know, and if that's what they're trying to engineer, that's great, you know? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, I think that wasn't necessarily the, like, goal for me. And, you know, still is kind of, like, not necessarily my, like, it, it's not necessarily in my MySpace top five or eight or whatever, you know? It's... <laughs> did you leave Tom or did you leave Tom now? So, you know? Yeah, did exactly. They take Tom's, did that take Tom's spot? But no. But to answer your question, the initial question is: uh, I, at that time, I I don't I didn't really like identify myself as or identify as an artist. I think I was, you know, I mean, I I'm not really sure what I identified myself did, at the time. I guess I identified myself as a painter. I thought of myself more as a painter than an artist. Ooh, because that's kind of more romantic. 
Yeah, and I think I was down for the romanticism of that at the time, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, don't mean I that think with sometimes I still kind of like... I don't mean that with any criticism at all. I'm saying... Oh, neither neither do I, but, I, but I, I do know agree. You don't. <laughs> I just want to. I just want to be clear. I don't mean... I think the... I think the, I think that's kind of the different, like, I mean, that's like, a, it's a whole big thing, but I think that sort of the romance of saying, identifying as painter is sort of why we would feel more comfortable saying painter than artist, because artist is kind of like, you're inviting abuse or contempt at customs, but painters like, oh, you're <laughs> such a noble. If you identify as an artist, you're uh, you're asking for contempt at customs. You know, I don't know. I I never I never listen to myself as an artist. I never experienced it. Yeah, I would give someone a hard time at customs if I. No, I'm not. I would I would like to think I wouldn't give anyone a hard time at customs if I was working in that at customs, but. I would like to think I would be open to all if I was working. You know what I mean? Because, you know, that's how I would want to be treated. But, um, yeah, I guess I think maybe the reason that I that it was like I didn't at, at the time probably like thought, was thinking and identifying more as a painter and not even really even thinking about like the term artist is because it was I was primarily painting, but also like, you know, it's like uh, I, I'm not sure what the exact definition of like painting or like painter or paint is but like I do know that like the act of painting is to apply is to like apply pigment you know yeah and you and so by that point that it was meaningful to you that it was it was therapeutic and it was something that was good for you yeah but I think um I think like in yeah it's just like the it's it's the application and I think that like that resonated with me at the time more was like the idea of like I I am the I am the applier of the pigment to create the to create the fantasy, you know. That's rad. I love it. So you were working so you I know I don't know what I identify with as now, who knows. Mhm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um well, you're thinking about it. That's I mean, I it doesn't at this point, you're too far into the thing that it, you don't need to have an answer, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I would never, yeah, I guess I did ask you that. I was going to say I'd never ask you, but I guess I never did. But I backdated the question. I was trying to ask you about a specific time period. And then, yeah. well, we're just just to like round it out, just yeah. for the, to round it out, I think, I mean, you had asked, you said, like, did you, uh, you know, identify as an artist at the time? And, like, that was a really long answer, and here, if you need it, this is the short answer. Is at the time I didn't really identify as an artist at all. I identified as a, a painter, and um, and I think you know, identifying as or you know, the label of being an artist, I think, is more something that other people say about you, and not so much something that people say about themselves. To me, right? Yeah. And then I we we've spoken about it a little bit before, but like your experience in New York and you were I know you worked at a library at one point and then and you were library. Yeah. I loved it till I couldn't stand it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. You loved it all the way. You loved it all yeah, the fully. way. You got you got I mean, the love from it. I would I would say as a person who did not attend university, I would say that going that that library and working there was very much like like a uh, university for me because I suddenly had access to like 
a, you know, and this is, I was working at the oldest library here in New York. It was founded in 1756, so before the Declaration of Independence even. So, like, what? The, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, the, the, like, depth of their, you know. I didn't know that. Well, yeah. Well, what's funny is, and I think I might have mentioned this to you before, but I'm just also going to bring it up now because yeah. I had uh, mentioned Sun Ra earlier. But I was yeah. looking for a, I was looking for the Immeasurable Equation, which is an anthology of all of Sun Ra's poetry, and it's a really beautiful, like burnt orange book with a like black and white portrait of him on it. The book itself is like a really beautiful object, and it's uh-huh. huge. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's like a 500 page book or something. It's like, like a Bible, yeah. and. Um, in terms of, like, its size and, like, the magnitude of it, you know. And so, like, I was looking for that book, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And um, I was, you know, I didn't have money to, like, buy it online. Also, like, fast forward a few years to, like, when I got cut, like, the first, like, you know, like, sizable amount of money I ever received. And the first thing I did, actually, was buy that book. And, um, but, uh, yeah, and so I was looking for that book, and I ended up at this library just like I walked down the street and just ended up at this library and saw it and was like, Oh, I should like see if they have the book. And so I went on it, you know, I asked them if they had the book and they said no. And then they were like, I don't think we do, but we could check. Do you want to like have a tour? So I went on a tour, which later once I ended up becoming the page master there, I, um, <laughs> full disclosure, it's actually just called being the page, but I call uh-huh. it being the page master because <laughs> it was, because I was obsessed with the movie, the page master with Macaulay Colgan and Christopher Lloyd that's uh-huh. like a live action turned animation that came out in like 1994. And I was literally obsessed with the movie. And um, so it's funny that I was like obsessed with that movie. And then fast forward, you know, like 20 years and I'm suddenly working at like the oldest library in New York. Anyway, so. Um, you are the page master. I was the page master. And so I, which if I ever have to make like a resume, which I don't even remember the last time I made a resume, but if I ever had to make a resume, I would put page master there in that, I would put it there for sure. I would say page master. So, um, yeah, so I went on a tour and like looked at the li- looked through the library and was like, wow, I really like love being this like place is really like beautiful. And at the time I had no money and, uh, you know, was working like, you know, like Craigslist, odd job gigs like homie recommendation like you get paid two hundred dollars to like stand in this studio today type shit so um yeah so i like asked them if i could have a job and they actually said no um at first and Uh um and then i left i left like my name and number and my like email and my number and um because they were like, well, do you have, a, like, a degree in, like, library? And I was like, no. And they were like, have you worked in a library? And I was like, no. They like, have you ever worked in a bookstore? I was like, no. They're like, no, thank you. And I was like, yeah. fair. Um, but then they ended up calling me back, like, uh, like months late. I'd forgotten about it. And then, like, mm-hmm. three months later, they called me back and were like, hey, actually, we had a page quit. Uh, do you think you could come in for an interview? So I went in for an interview and the job and, you know, worked there for, I like, I think in total, I quit. I I quit twice. I quit once. I quit once for a skate trip because I couldn't get the time. They're like, we can't give you the time off. And I was basically like, I have to quit for this project. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. but I had like a really good relationship with the, with people there. So like, you know, it wasn't some like I disappeared thing. You know, I was just like, Hey, yeah. I, like, I need to take this opportunity to like do this other thing. And so I did it and then ended up coming back. Like, you know, then I, came back from the trip and I ended up getting my job back because they still hadn't filled the position. So I just was like, <laughs> got my job back. 
So I was like, great, I got my cake and I got to eat it that time. Um, yeah. And, uh, and stay the page master. Yeah, and so I stayed the page master. But yeah, I worked there and, um, you know, I had access to just like so much literature and so much history and I just like, you know, and, uh, you know, they, someone from the library might listen to this and, but I'm just going to say it anyways. You know, there were times that I would, because we have a they have a whereabouts sheet where you're supposed to sign where you're going because there's no phone reception in the building. Whoa. And I'm also as an employee I wasn't allowed to be like on my phone or anything. Uh-huh. So you have to sign a whereabouts sheet where you go because there's 12 floors of books. The stacks have 12 floors. No so, way. Oh yeah, so I would say I was in stack 3, I'd go to stack 6 and fucking just like read a book for 2 hours, you know what I mean? I would wow. just like when I needed to I would just like I was able to just disappear completely, you know. Wow. Which was which was also like you know, invigorating and in a way was kind of like the reason I moved to New York is because I like wasn't ready to like process a lot of things and I was just trying to like run away and I was like can run away and disappear and be invisible here. It's such a huge place. Like I can just like disappear. And I, I did sort of like do that and you know, it wasn't all it was cracked up to be if I'm being totally honest. Um, <laughs> disappearing but I did. Disappearing into the shelves or just New York? Yeah, disappearing into the shelves uh, was was great, but it, uh, I mean, as romantic as some people I think think like disappearing or being like off the grid or whatever is, um, yeah. you know, to a certain degree you have to be really prepared for that because it's really uh, something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I would disappear into the shelves basically, you know, into the stacks, and I would just like, you know, read books, and it's how I, you know, and at the t- at the time when I first started painting, I also, you know, Matt. Uh, had just moved to um, London to go. And Matt and I are old friends, which, you know, we've known. Matt's probably one of my oldest friends that I'm still, like, in contact with. We've known each other for, you know, at this point, probably, like, 10, 11 years. I love it. Matt Hilvers. Yeah, Matt Hilvers, everybody. Matt Hilvers, everybody. Matt Hilvers, everybody. Matt had just started going to RCA in London and, um, you know, was, like, you, you know, really committed to, like, uh, you know, his, like, art practice and career and was kind of, you know, just like, oh, I think you really have, like, you know, a, a good thing going here and kind of just, like, you know, like, introduced me to some, you know, sort of, like, entry pe- entry points that he thought I would resonate with me, which was super helpful. And then, like, I just took that information and was, like, immediately at, like, museums and in that library, like, reading books about those, you know, those people and, you know, certain, like, you know, like periods and like, you know, certain just, you know, are just artists in general throughout history resonated with me. And I was, you know, suddenly like had access through working at that library to like, you know, a huge portion of history. So, yeah, that's why I, that's why I call that period school. It's incredible. I mean, what an amazing place to disappear into just like a learning knowledge world. Yeah, I mean, I needed it at the time. I was, uh, you know, you know, at the time I actually, you know, before I even actually like came out, it's like I had previously been like outed by a group of people and that was part of like my, like, you know, my like, uh, response and need to, to the, to feeling like I needed to disappear, you know. So I had like some people that were like, you know, very supportive, but I also, it was just like a really traumatizing experience for me. So I was like, I need to like disappear, you know. And uh, I successfully did that. And like I said, it's not necessarily all it's cracked up to be, but it was something (laughs) I needed at the time and it was super helpful for me. And it's what kept me, you know, like, 
it's what kept me in a in an artistic practice and it's also what kept kept me buried in the books in order to like you know learn as much as i could about like you know about like you know the past what did what did you wind up doing for work after the after the library like what would what was your new york work life like oh i was working at the library and then um i through do you know Cheryl Dunn? Oh wow. I have no idea where you're going with this, but Cheryl Dunn yes, I love Cheryl well, Dunn so much. Let's go. Buckle up. It's about to get crazy. Um Whoa. So Cheryl, um a friend a friend I knew through skating, his name's Phil Jackson. Phil was Cheryl's assistant. Shout out Phil and Cheryl. Um, and Phil was going on a trip, I think a skate trip, uh, during winter and I had no money at that time and was not able to go anywhere during winter. And, um, Cheryl needed help archiving some film and Phil knew that I had previously like, you know, what, like had a period where I was like, you know, using photography as a medium, like pretty heavily and was like, do you know how to like scan film or whatever? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, cool. Cause like my boss uh, her name's Cheryl. I'm going to introduce you. Like, she needs help doing this thing, but, like, I'm leaving because, like, I need to, like, go on this trip and want to, like, leave. But she needs some help doing these things, and it's going to be, like, right on the cusp of when I'm gone with, like, a deadline or something. So, like, I met up with Cheryl. We, like, you know, got along enough for her to be like, yeah, you can, like, I'll have you, like, do this stuff for me. And uh-huh. so I, like, worked a few days for Cheryl and then, like, was still, you know, working at the library but, like, worked on this thing for Cheryl, and then, like, a couple months later, Cheryl, you know, hit me up, and, um, I mean, you know me, I'm a fucking chatty Kathy, so, yeah. like, you know, Cheryl and I obviously, like, talked a lot about, you know, many different things, uh-huh. and then she hit me up, like, a few months after that, and was like, hey, so, um, she was like, did you, and she gave me a copy, this is actually super funny, and I hope Cheryl listens to this, but she gave me a copy of Everybody Street, which I hadn't seen at the time. I also did not have a TV or a smartphone phone or a computer, or at the time, I had I literally had like a slider, you know what I mean, like a Nokia <laughs> slider phone, and had basically like no access to the internet except for like other people's houses, and um, so... Um, yeah, so she gave me this DVD and then, like, hit me up, you know, then I, like, was doing, you know, my own thing. I'm working at the library, and she hit me up a few months later and was like, hey, like, I have, I was wondering if you need a job. And I was like, you know, the library was paying me minimum wage. You know, I was still having to, like, steal food. I could, like, barely make rent. I was like, it was definitely gnarly. So I was... um so I was just like, yeah, I could really, like, use some extra, like, income. That would be great. And um, she was like... So I, she's like, did you watch, she's like, so you watched, uh, you watched my documentary, right? And I was like, uh, I was like, full disclosure, I actually did not. Uh-huh. I was like, I do have the copy, but like, I have not watched it. I actually don't have a DVD player. Uh, and she was yeah. like, okay, well, um, she was like, there's a person in that documentary, her name's Jill Friedman. Mm-hmm. And she was like, my friend Jill um, is really in like desperate need of an assistant right now. And I was wondering if I could pay you to be Jill's assistant. Right. And she was like, I think you two would get along. Um, <laughs> she was like, uh, but Jill's a very specific, I th- I'm trying to remember exactly how she put it. She was like, Jill's a very specific type of lady. Uh-huh. So, um, she's like, she doesn't necessarily get along with everyone and she's actually never had an assistant, but I uh-huh. think that you two would like probably hit it off. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, like, sounds great. You know what I mean? I have, like, no. I, also, the funny thing is, like, the reason she's saying is because, like, she interviews Jill in her documentary. And, like, you would know about Jill if you had watched the documentary. But I went into it, like, relatively blind, which right, is right, right, super right. funny because Jill is, Jill is number, Jill number one, Jill actually died, um, I want to say about a year ago. Oh, no. Maybe, yeah, Jill 79, I want to say, maybe yeah. 80. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I actually was Jill's only assistant the entire time she was ever having But, um, yeah, so Jill, um, so I go over to Jill's in, like, Morningside Park, like, at the corner of, like, Harlem and the Upper West Side, uh-huh. and, um, yeah, Jill, <laughs> yeah, so I show up at this, like, 76-year-old woman, like, Bush woman's house, um, not knowing, like, anything about her, really, or, like, what she was going to be like. Uh-huh. And if you've watched Cheryl's documentary, Everybody Street, which is really great, which I watched after the fact. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jill is, like, legendary. She's, like, an you know, was an amazing, like, trailblazing photographer and artist for her time. You know what I mean? Was, like, you know, she was, you know, at, um, you know, she was, like, at, Washington during the like initial civil rights movement and made a book about it called Resurrection City. She's made like an insane amount. I'm actually, you know, the story is going to get pretty funny, but like I still to this day really value Jill and her work and think that Jill was like an, you know, an amazing trailblazing person for her time. You know, like, like, you know, she ran away from home to literally join the circus and take photographs of like a traveling circus when she was a teenager, which is like absolutely insane of her. And, um, yeah, so, you know, she, and so, like, on the the note of her, of the insanity of her, Jill was batshit crazy. So, like, you know, (laughs) she was an amazing person, but she was also batshit crazy. I'm talking, like, Jill would wake up and, like, you know, like, she'd just, like, wake up and smoke weed and then just, like, I'd have to make her eat food because she, like, she, like, might have even had an eating disorder maybe, but Jill, like, absolutely hated, like, eating, essentially, and she would just, huh? she would sit in front of the TV watching Democracy Now! This is also 2016, so, like, the election is about to happen. She would oh, sit fuck. in front of the TV yelling at the, yelling at Democracy Now! How she's like, you can't support Hillary either. She's a cunt. That uh-huh. war hawk's a cunt. Uh-huh. Just yelling at the TV. Uh-huh. Um, and then I'm just in her, and this is a one bedroom apartment. She doesn't have, you know, and then, you know, she doesn't have like a studio. She just has her one bedroom apartment, and essentially an entire archive of her entire career from 1960, you know, from the moment she started taking photos in like, I think 1960, like, you know, seven or something crazy. Uh-huh. I don't know. Up until like, you know, modern day now. So up until like 2000, you know, 15 or something. And, um, yeah, so I started working for Jill, and then Wait, was I was she working... still taking pictures. Uh, she was, yeah, she would take pictures still. Um, she wasn't really, she wasn't working on anything. I mean, but she was that kind of like, you know, uh, she was that kind of artist where, like, I don't, you know, I think until she was, in, until she was unable to, Jill was still interested in the in the process of the like actual direct process of like, you know, her medium of photography and like photographing things. Yeah. Um, wow. And were you working? Was that pretty full time? Um, you know, it uh, it was it was and it wasn't. So you know, this is so essentially Cheryl had hired me to work with Jill because Jill needed to go through her archive and start like really archiving stuff, you know. Uh-huh. And so I was start because she just had 
boxes, like black boxes full of silver gelatin prints without sleeves, like unnumbered, like hardly any of them signed. You know what I mean? Like she, oh, yeah. like an entire room. I'm not even kidding. Floor to ceiling, every side, every fucking like wall just covered in these boxes full of like all different sizes of prints. And then like first edition, like 20 first edition street cop books that she like was hoarding that she wouldn't sell online and wouldn't give to anyone. And like, you know, just like wild shit. And so I was working for her and working at the library. And then, um, this is an, uh, this is an amazing story, uh, actually. And I am not sure if, if who I'm about to talk about, Bridget Freed, is still alive or not. And if anybody listening to this knows if Bridget is alive, I don't have Bridget's phone number anymore, but if anybody knows if Bridget, Bridget Freed is still alive and can give me Bridget Freed's phone number, I would love that. But um, Bridget is actually Leonard Freed's, was Leonard Freed's wife. Um, do you know who Leonard Freed is? No, who's Leonard Freed? Leonard Freed is also a super, like, prominent and famous photographer who has, like, you know, photos in the Smithsonian and stuff. And during the, like, you know, street photography, like, movement in the 19, like, 60s when, like, a lot of people were starting to just, like, shoot on the street, um, him and Jill knew each other through photography. Jill actually talked so, like, incessantly about how Leonard would steal all of her ideas, which is... Which is super funny and normal for a like a white guy to steal a woman's ideas and then use them and, and profit <laughs> off them and, and benefit himself. Um, which uh, you know, I don't know how much of that is like really true and was just like you know, because I Leonard had been dead for ten years by the time I met Bridget, so I don't. I never even met Leonard, but um, you know, Jill would would talk about Leonard in that way and. Um, So Jill wanted me, Jill refused to believe that I was capable of doing the archive without someone uh, directing me on what to do, even though I did, like, you know, know, I was like, I know how to, like, run an archive. It's all very simple. It's all about quantification, you know? So um, it's all about quantification and storage. And so... um, she was like, we're going to go see Bridget. Bridget lives upstate. And so she's like, we're going to go on the train. We're going to go see Bridget. And uh, you're going to meet my friend Bridget. Her and Bridget have known each other since we're in their 20s. You know what I mean? At, yeah. at this point, I think Jill is 76 and Bridget is 83 or something. Whoa. And, um, yeah, uh, somehow I got into this, like, I really got thrown into this world of, like, elderly, like, artist ladies for a while, which was, like, super wow. important and amazing for me. Yeah, that's incredible. Oh yeah, it was amazing. So I'm I'm with I'm with Jill, and we go up to visit Bridget. And um, Bridget is a, is a German woman, and she you know still has her husband Leonard's archive at the time that she like runs and has like printed books with publishers since his death, and also like sells his photos to museums and stuff. He was really like a very and I think still is a pretty like well known and famous figure, and um. So Bridget also, you know, and the funny thing is, like, from Jill's perspective, she was like, Bridget is just, Bridget's rich because of, of Leonard, and Leonard's only rich because of my ideas, and I'm broke, and oh it's because God. of Leonard. You know, and she's like, <laughs> we're on the train up there, and she's like, you can't tell her I said that. You can't tell her I said that. But it's oh the God. truth. The truth is I'm broke because Leonard stole all my ideas, that fucking scum, you know? She's just oh. like, really, yeah, but it's also, like, amazing, you know? Yeah. I'm, like, loving every second of it. And, um... So we go up there. I get to see Leonard's archives uh, at at Bridget's house, and like you know, we're having like tea and whatever, and like talking about things. And you know, the, Bridget called me um, 
the next day and is like, hello, Stephen. That's how Bridget talks. She's uh-huh. like, hello, Stephen. She's like, Stephen. So I just wanted to call you to tell you that it seems like Jill is not doing good. She's doing very bad. So I think that it's best, you know, Jill is talking so much about making a books and doing, you know, whatever. And I think it's Jill time to retire. So uh, I think we need to focus on Jill retiring. So you are working the archive, yes? She's like, I need you to not tell Jill. And uh, I'm going to, do you have money to, to get a bus ticket up here, to get a train ticket? And I was like, um... Uh, I was like, I think so. And she was like, well, if you get up here, I'll reimburse you for your train ticket. But you come up here, you don't tell Jill. A day you're not working for Jill, you come up here, you don't tell Jill. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And so I took the train up there. And then she's like, so Jill is not doing good. I think she's in very bad health. And um, I think that I, over the last few days, I've contacted some people. And I think I've found someone to buy Jill's archive. And oh. I was like, oh. And she's like, Yes, yeah, she's like, you know, how, she's like, I have lots of friends who are very rich and, you know, they uh, are interested in owning artist archives. Some of them are interested because they love the artists and some of them are interested because of the tax break. And, oh my um, God. Yeah, so she, she was like, calls you that. Yeah, exactly. And she's like, so she's like, you, she's like, do you, she's like, do you have, she's like, does your family have money? And I was like, uh, no. And she's like, do you, do you have any money? And I was like, not really. And she was like, so you so you are broke, and I was like, yeah. And she's like, did you go to college? And I'm like, no. And she's like, okay. So she's like, she says, you are you are like me. You are you need to be an entrepreneur. And she's like, so now you are. She's like, so you know what you do when you're an entrepreneur? You make up what you are, and you say, I am this now. And she says, so I'm telling you, you are an archivist now. So you are going to run Jill's archive. Um, and she's like, so what we need to do is, you know, because Jill is in bad health, we need her to uh, we need her to retire now. So we need to sell the archive as soon as possible. This is in like August. And she's like, do you of think what year? you, um, two thousand? I want to say two thousand sixteen. Oh my gosh! What? Whoa! Yeah. And so she's like, she's like, so she's like the person who's going to be buying the archive, he will depend depending on how good of a of a shape you put it in, he buy it for four to six million dollars. Oh my gosh. And I was like, okay. And she's like, and you the, you are an entrepreneur and I have now made it that you are an archivist. So the archivist gets ten percent. No way. And I was like, what? And she's like, Yeah, so you she's like, so for now, she's like, you work, you don't tell Jill. She's like, if you tell Jill, she will go crazy. She will want to sell the archive immediately. She will not even get a million dollars. It's in such bad shape. She will get money. She won't even be able to survive the rest of her life. She's like, but if you put, put it in good, she's like, you're a very good boy, right? She's like, I can tell you're a very good boy. She's like, uh, you, she's like, you will not tell Jill. She's like, you will put the, arch- the, the archive in order. And she's like, and then they, we will sell the archive for somewhere between four to six million dollars, and you will get ten percent. So you will make five hundred thousand dollars. It sounds like a lot of money for you, right? Because you have none. Oh my god! <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that does sound like a lot of money. Um, How long? It sounds like a ton of money. You? That's insane. How long? She was like. She's like, they're going to want to buy it before the new year because then they can claim it on their taxes for this year. So you need to have it done by December. She's like, and will you have it? Can you have it? She's like, you're, she's like, I think you're a good worker, right? She's like, I like you. You're a good worker, I can tell. So you have it done by December. And this is like August, you said? Yeah, it was August. And um, I was like, okay. Um, 
you know, and you know, at the time, um, at the time, Jill, at the time, Jill was not doing well financially and had told no one because she didn't have contact with the, with a lot of her family um, because a lot of her family was dead or she just, you know, had resentments that she had not yet resolved. And um, did she have kids? No, Jill was never married and never had kids. And did you, so, and did you know, did you think, did any, wow, did any part of you think this is not possible or real or was it like, no, this is fully for real? Uh, no, I said, I'm tired of stealing food from fucking Whole Foods. I'm going to make that $500,000 and I'm going to chill. Wow. But I mean, it was like, so it, it wasn't like too far out to be like, this is not possible. You're like, it was pretty really far happen. out, but I was, but I was like, uh, that's, I was like, that's a big number. There's no way I'm saying no. I was like, I'm yeah. not going to say no. I'll make it happen. I was like, whatever it is, I'll make it happen. Wow. And so at the time, Jill was really not doing good financially and she, hadn't told anybody and then she told me that she was like she was like well you know I she's like well you know it's not really fair that Cheryl's paying you because I can hardly pay rent I don't even know if I'm going to be able to pay rent next month and I was like wait you don't know if you're going to be able to pay rent next month and she's like if you tell Cheryl I'll kill you she's like I'll fucking kill you if you tell Cheryl and I was like okay and she's like she can't she's like she can't know nobody can know she's like nobody can know that I'm about to be, that I'm basically broke she's like you can't tell anybody and I was like, okay, so Wait, was she paying you or was Cheryl paying you? No, Cheryl was paying me. And Cheryl so, was paying you just because Cheryl loved this woman and wanted to help her archive. Yeah, because sure, Jill, because Jill's fucking cool, and Cheryl loved Jill. So Cheryl was paying you to do Jill's archive, just like on the strength of love. Yeah, for the art. Wow. Yes, Cheryl's exactly. So this is bad. Cheryl. Cheryl's sick. So this is, is this is me. Cheryl, this is um, that is such a Cheryl move. To do that, a classic Cheryl move. <laughs> were Cheryl and the other? I'm sorry, what's the other lady's name? Bridget. Bridget. Were Bridget and Cheryl? Did they know each other? No, I don't think so. Wow. I only knew. I only ended up meeting Bridget because of Jill, right? Um, and so, the, the, what I'm what I'm talking about now is like a is a rewind, you know. So like before all of before me going to visit Bridget and all the and me finding out about the archives that we that we sell the archive, but I wasn't allowed to tell Jill, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Jill was basically broke and told me and told me that she would kill me if I told Cheryl. And so naturally I told Cheryl because I'm like, Jill can't live on the fucking street. She's 76, you know. So then then Cheryl contacted some friends and was like, I'm going to like, she's like, I, she's like, I need you to help me. She's like, what do you think we could do? And I had actually made her an Instagram. I was like, I'm going to make her an, I had already made her an Instagram when I started working with her and was like, you know, helping her like use Instagram, which was absolutely hilarious watching her try to like use, like figure out how to use it. But, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I made her an Instagram and I was like basically curating the whole thing for her and like putting the images up for her and then just basically working with her and being like, tell me what you want it to like say, you know, it was just Mm -hmm. like a side thing I was doing. Uh But then since I had made that, um, you know, Cheryl was like, we need to do, like, a print sale for her or something. And I was like, I actually made her an Instagram and have been, like, posting for her. So, like, let's do, an, let's do a print sale, like, through her Instagram. And Cheryl was like, I'll just, like, contact everyone I know, basically, to, like, bump this, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for a, like, limited period, we, we, like, just sold four by six prints of ten images. Cheryl and I think it was Cheryl, Phil, and me went through and we chose, like, 
I think, 10 or 12 images and yeah. then basically put it up online that, like, Jill Friedman is doing. Because she's honestly, like, a, like, she really is a legend. Like, yeah. a lot of people are very, like, into her work. And so, like, there was a lot of people that, like, had no idea if she was even alive, you know what I mean? Because no one had heard from her since she did Everybody Street with Cheryl. And right. so, like, we basically, like, just put it on the internet that she was having a print sale and we just made her like over the period of a few days, like made her like enough money for her to be stable for like a, a like relatively long period of time. Wow. And she so didn't want to do it and she didn't want to fucking do it. And I was like, look, Jill, I was like, you're going to be, I was like, you're going to like, you'll be homeless. I was like, you what? can't be homeless. Like you have to fucking do the print sale. And she's like, that seems awfully cheap, $100 for a four by six. And I was like, you need to shut the fuck up and just like agree to do this because like there's no other way around it. And so, you know, I like, you know, Cheryl slash me convinced her that like it was a good idea, you know, and, um, and so that's, yeah, we sold a ton of them and it did, it did super well and rightfully so because, you know, she deserves it. And, um, so, you know, like we, and, you know, she was like, I don't think this is going to work or whatever. And I was just like, just trust me. I was like, just trust me that like, you know, I was like, I've got, we've gotten you this far. I was like, I've helped you get this far. Like, just trust me. Like I yeah. can do this for you. Like, just let me do it, you know? And wow. so we did it. And then she was like feeling pretty good, you know? And then that's when she was like, well, I need you to go meet Bridget. And uh, so you can really know how to do the archive because you don't know shit. And I was like, all right. So um, before you, wow. Yeah. So then we go up to visit, to visit um, Bridget. And then Bridget tells me, Bridget tells me that like, I can't tell Jill because Jill's in really bad shape and rightfully so she was. And I don't think anyone really knew at first, like how, you know, how hard, you know, Jill honestly, I think was really depressed and suffered from depression for a very untreated for a very long time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I think it it was, like, really difficult, you know, for her to, you know, also it's like, she, you know, we live in a, like, white male misogynist world, and she was a trailblazing woman in the 60s, 70s, and 80s who just, like, never quite got, like, the credit due to her, you know? Yeah. And I think that really, like, ate her up. And, um, you know, she, so, she, you know, she wasn't doing well, and then, I'm, you know, working with her. Bridget has me come back up there. She tells me she wants to sell the archive. I can't tell Jill. I start working on the archive. I tell Jill, I'm like, Jill, you need to retire. Like, we need to, like, sell your archive. Like, I know we can sell your archive. Just trust me. Like, I made you all those – I helped make you all those thousands of dollars for the print sale. Like, just trust me. Like, trust that, like, Cheryl hired me, and Cheryl, like, wanted me to be here with you, and you like me. And she's like, you're one of the – she's like, you're the only person – she was, just, she was saying the funniest fucking shit to me and also some of the most awful shit that I've, that anyone's ever said to me in my life. But, um, you know, she, um, but I remember one time she, she was like, you're the only person under 40 that I respect. And I was wow. just like, you're absolutely crazy. Um, she, yeah, she, she was really crazy. She never gave me a print. I always resented her for that. She never gave me a print the entire time that I worked with her. And one time she, one of my favorite photo of hers, she inkjet printed it for me uh -huh. inkjet printed the fucking thing on paper and signed it and was like here's your print and then you know then once she found out that i painted and she saw like a painting of mine she's like oh she's like you're like a modern kandinsky you know she's like i love kandinsky she's like i love your paintings she's like you should make me a painting i so pettily like while she was taking a nap 
like had I had a, a, a painting I'd made on my iPad and I printed out a painting oh I had made on my iPad and signed it and then I when she woke up I was like Jill I have your I have a paint I have a painting for you and she the painting that she really liked that she had seen a photo of that I literally just replicated on my I I like t- t- I took a photo of it I drew over it in in uh in on my iPad and I replicated the painting and I printed it out for her. So oh it's one of the pettiest things I've ever done. And I was like, here's the, I was like, here's the painting that you said you liked so much. She was like, this is just a piece, this is just an inkjet piece of paper. I was like, yeah, it kind of reminds me of that photo you printed for me. No way. What did she say? She hated it. She was, you know, she was like, she was like, you're such a, she's like, you're, such, you're so petty, Mary. <laughs> she would call me Mary all the time, which made me feel like I was in the 1980s. It was great. Did she, where did Mary, why Mary? Mary is like a old like slang term for like a for like a gay or queer person. <laughs> Being like, oh he's oh he's such a Mary. They're such a Mary. Oh fuck. Yeah. Well, um, wait. So what ha- Wait. So what happened? Did you make the deadline of December? Oh my god. Of course I didn't. <laughs> so uh, so I'm working at the library still at the time, and I'm also working with Jill, and then. I do this meeting with Bridget. Bridget's like, you need to do this now. Jill needs to retire. She's too old. It's like she's not in good shape. Like, she needs to retire. She can't be sleeping on a feather bed couch and have her bedroom full of her entire life's work, like, just yeah. essentially, like, running away in boxes. Yeah. And so um, and so I started working on it, and then I told Jill, I was like, Jill, I need to – I was like, there's no way I'm going to finish this. And I was like, we need to finish it by December, and I'm going to finish it. And what you're going to do is you're is, – because at this time, Jill had the money to pay me. So now Jill's paying me. And oh, wow. um, Cheryl's not paying me. So Jill's paying me. And um, also the funny thing is I was I was doing it for, like, relatively, like, a like very low price. And mm-hmm. then once Jill had money, Jill was like, well, you're not getting a raise. I hope you know that. She's like, you're still doing this for $10 an hour. I hope you know that. And I was like, all right, Jill, thanks. Uh, appreciate that. Um, <laughs> no way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Her and I had such a tumultuous relationship, but at the end of it, it's like, honestly, I really, like, loved and respected her. And um, I can also take to my grave, I'm the only person that I was ever her, like, true living assistant. So um, she... Uh, and the only person under forty that she ever respected. And the only person under forty that she that she ever respected. So um Amazing. You know wow. so you know, she um she was like, you know, really in need of a break and she was like, I need a break and I was like, You don't have to do anything. I'm gonna like quantify everything, put everything in sleeves, put boxes, I buy all the supplies, I'm going to count everything and then you just, all you have to do is sign stuff. That's it. I was like, I'll put piles in bo- and boxes for you to sign. That's all you have to do is just sign things so that everything has your signature on it. Yeah. And um, and she, you know, like, she, you know, we agreed that she was like, okay, so, like, you're going to quit the – I was like, I'm quitting the library. I'm going to work for you four days a week. I'm going to do this for four days a week for six months or, like, four months or whatever. I was like, and then we're selling the archive, and you're, you're going to be so good. I was like, you're going to be so good. You're going to be set. We're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> And she's like, well, how do you know? How do you know we're going to sell the archive? You, I'm spending all my money. I'm spending all my money on you. And I'm like, you're not spending all your money on me. You're you're spending $10 an hour on me, which is, quite frankly, like below any rate anyone's getting in 2016. Uh, you know, that's like below minimum wage, quite frankly, lady. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, so like, I'm like, just trust me. Just believe in me. Like, we can do this. I know that we can do this. And so I, I'm doing it for about, I quit the library. I put in my two weeks, work for her for about a month. 
And then, and then she just one day is like, we, she, we have this huge like blowout fight. She has this blowout fight where she's like, you know, she literally is, is holding a high heel shoe. You know, she's like, she's like standing <laughs> over me, like, like breathing down my neck from when I'm doing like anything. And she's like, well, what are you even doing back here? I'm like, I'm just counting and quantifying, organizing everything, you know? And she's like, I feel like you're in the same place you were hours ago. And I'm like, I'm on a different box, but it's all the same fucking prints, Jill. Like, of course it looks like I'm in the same place. Like, if you printed the same photo 50 times. And so, you know, we're, like, arguing in her, like, in the back room, and then she's, like, you know, she's just, all of a sudden, it's, like, so, she's, like, I just, you know, you, I don't need to be spending money on this. I need to go to Costa Rica. And I'm, like, what? you can't go to Costa Rica because I was, like, you're ill. You are mentally ill, lady. I was, like, you can't go to Costa Rica. We have to finish your archive so you can fucking retire. She's, like, I've still got more books to make. And I'm, like, you need to go watch Democracy Now. And she's, like, <laughs> you need to shut up, faggot. And I'm like, you call me faggot again, I'm going to break your arm. And then she's like holding a, she's like holding a shoe over my head. You know what I mean? Like, she's going to like, hit. I'm like, hit me, you brittle old bitch. Hit me. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So we had a huge blow up and then, and then she goes back into the other room. You know, she realizes I'm like, you're, de- I'm like, you're decrepit. You're ancient. I was like, you, lay, you couldn't lay a finger on me. You know what I mean? We're just, like, yelling at each other. She's, like, calling me all sorts of, like, profane, homophobic things, and I'm just, like, calling her all sorts of, like, ageist, like, rude shit, you know? And so, like, we're just screaming at each other. And then I finally, I'm, I'm like, exhausted, you know, and she, like, she wins, which she loved, you know? She, like, wins the argument, essentially, because, like, I give up. And then she goes back into the other room and, like, is watching Democracy Now! and, like, dip, dipping her ginger snaps in wine because they're too crunchy. And, uh-huh. um... You know, she's just, like, eventually comes back, and I'm just sitting in there, you know what I mean? I'm just, like, I'm so, like, over it and just, like, uh-huh. exhausted. I'm, like, sitting in there. She's, like, what are you doing just sitting back here? I was, like, honestly, Jill, I was, like, I think I'm going to go home. And she was, like, what do you mean you're going to go home? I was, like, I was like, this is just, like, too much. I was, like, why are, we, why are you even screaming at me like this? She's, like, well, you know, the thing is, is what I really wanted to tell you is I'm going to Maine. And I was, like, what do you mean you're going to Maine? I was, like, we're, we're I was, like, okay, are you, like, do you need me to, do you need to leave me keys so I can water the plants and, like, work on the archive? She's like, she's like, I'm going to Maine, and I think you probably just need a break. Maybe you just need a break, and you shouldn't, you know, you don't, you don't need to work on this right now. And I was like, are you firing me, Jill? And she's like, no, 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 I'm not firing you. I just think that, like, you know, I need to go to Maine, and I don't know when I'm going to be back one month, maybe three, you know, and, uh, <laughs> oh my she's, God. Like, and uh, she's like, and I think you just, like, maybe you just need a break. You know, that that's what instigated the argument, where we, like, started, like, fighting and screaming at each other. And I was like, if you're going to fire me, say it to my face. And she's like, I'm not firing you. I just think that, like, I need to go to Maine for two, maybe eight months, and you need a break, you know, and I'm just oh like... <laughs> And then we just have this huge blow, and I'm like, Jill, I think I'm going to go home. And she's like, okay. And then the next morning, she calls me, and she's like, she's like, she's like, I mean, you know, I hoped I would never have to do this, but because you had never been late. It's 1030, and you're late, and where's my green juice? And I was oh like, gosh. I was like, Jill, I was like, you, I was like, Jill, you tried to fire me yesterday. And she was like, well, I didn't fire you. You just need a break. And she's like, just come up here. I just, you need, I need your help. So like, come here, you know? And so I go up there. And uh, then we just, like, have, like, a talk, and she's like, you know, I'm like, Jill, I'm like, Jill, you need to, I was like, if you really respect me, I was like, you need to at least respect me enough to tell me that you're firing me because I quit a job to work for you. So, like, you need to respect me enough to tell me that you're firing me, and she's like, all right, I'm firing you. She's like, I just, I don't, yeah, she was like, I don't have it in me. She's like, I don't have it in me. I'm too old. She's like, I got too many things I want to do. I'm never going to get to make Manhattan. There's this book she wanted to make called Manhattan. 
that she was like, uh, I'm a, she's like, I have to make this book about photos in Manhattan because Manhattan's changed. The village is so different now. Fuck all those yuppies down there in the village, you know, and just like saying <laughs> she, she was a real piece of work. So, uh, you know, she's, she's like, I never got, I'm, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to make that book. And I wanted to make that book. And I just like, I need to, I just need to like, she's like, I just need to go away for a while, you know? And I'm just like, all right, like whatever you want. I was like, we need to, I was like, I really want to do like us to finish the archives. Like you need to just retire. And she's like, she's like, you know what? I've got enough money that'll last me for a while. I'm like, bitch, you're, you know, you, your five figures are not going to last you for more than a year, you know? Yeah. So like, yeah. So I'm just like, all right, you know? And then like serendipity, you know, lines up. And a couple of days later, Bridget calls me and is like, hello, Steven. She's like, She's like, so how are things going with Jill? And I'm like, they're going very bad. I was like, Jill, yeah. Jill fired me. They're going very bad. Oh like, Jill God. doesn't want to work. Jill doesn't want to work on the archive. She's over it. She fired me. And um, and she's like, well, did you tell Jill that that you that the archive was going to be sold? And I was like, I mean, I told her to trust me, but I didn't tell her that we were going to tell the archive. She's like, this is very good of you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad you did not tell her because she would have called me and been so crazy and blah blah. You know, she's like, just, they're both just so old and like hilarious. Uh-huh. And um. And so she's like, okay, so she's like, you, you are out of job, yes? So you have no job? I was like, yeah. She's like, so you you have no, you don't know what to do for money, right? And I was like, uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm kind of fucked. And she was like, okay, then come work for me. And what? I was like, what? She's like, yes, you can. She's like, when when is the earliest you can come up here? You come up tomorrow? She's like, you take the train? Do you have enough money for the train or no? And I was like, yeah, I have enough money for the train. She's like, okay, so you you take the train up? So I I took the train up to her like estate or whatever and then <clears throat> where did you know, she live? She was in Connecticut? No, she lived she lives in upstate New York. I don't okay. I don't want I don't want to blow up her spot or like No, I, I don't want you to yeah, 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 say yeah. like exactly where she lives, but she does course, she lives yeah. in upstate New York. Okay. And um yeah, and so she um <laughs> you know, she has me go up there and then I end up staying there for like 4 days. Uh-huh. And Whoa. she has this tiny little house. Uh, I mean, she she has a huge house, but she has on her property a tiny little house that's like essentially the size of a like normal one bedroom, like uh-huh. not not a full apartment, just a, a bedroom, you know. Uh-huh. And it's she calls it the bunkie, uh-huh. and she's like she's like she's like okay, well you're an artist, so the artist stands the bunkie when they come to visit. So you're going to stay in the bunkie, and then you work for me, and uh, we're working. She had just had surgery on her back. I think she had, like, an issue with, like, a disc or something. So she was like, I need you to help me clean and do the cooking and, like, blah, blah, blah. So, oh, wow. like, yeah, so I essentially just, like, would live. I would go up there. I would take the train up there. I would be up there for three to four days a week, and then I would come back to the city. She'd just literally give me cash, and then I would just come back to the city and be, you know, I lived on, like, uh, Broom and Allen at the time. So I would come back to the city. I'd be here, like, three days. I'd just, like, paint and skate and, like, do whatever I wanted. And then I would take the train back up there and, like, stay with her for three to four days. No and, way. um... Was she yeah, paying you like, dollars an hour? Oh, yeah. She was, she, was, she was taking care of me good. She was just, like... I mean, at a certain point, it's, like, our relationship kind of, like, transcended, like, you know, working at a certain point. And she was, like, I want to be your grandma. I am, like, your German grandma, you know? Um, oh, my God. That's so rad. <laughs> Yeah, it was amazing. So she, so then she would just literally like give me like a wad of cash and be like, "So you go back to the city now. You you have enough money to pay your rent and to have some fun, and then you come back here and you stay in the bunkie, do some more work." And so like you know, she would literally like yell out of her house at like six a.m. like yell my name out of the house to wake me up, you know. And then 
I would have to go in and like cook, help cook her breakfast, help cook breakfast and like make coffee and then help garden and like clean everything and like get prints ready to like send to people and like organize some stuff. And then she'd give me uh, what she called drawing time where I, she would be like, okay, for the next two hours, you just work on, you just make uh, an art piece. You do whatever you want. You Here's all the supplies. I don't need to draw anymore. I'm not an artist anymore. So. No way. <laughs> yeah, and then I would just, like, make drawings for, like, you know, or work on something for two hours, and then I would be, she'd be like, okay, it's, it's time for lunch, and then we'd have lunch, and then I'd do some gardening, and then she'd be like, all right, time for you to cook the dinner. No way. That is so rad. Was it awesome talking to her, too? Like, was it? Oh, my God. She was, she's incredible. I really hope that she's still alive. Yeah, she's incredible. I really loved her a lot. Um, and then we had, like, a really, I worked for her for, like, I can't even remember how long. Also, a hilarious thing, uh, sidebar about Jill is that at the time that Jill went to Maine, I had I had set up the production of a like uh, like um, Xeroxed book to do uh-huh. with Eight Ball because I was like you know a lot of my Lele and Yoma and like all and um, Saren and all my friends like worked at Eight Ball and I was there a lot and like contributing and I would make zines there. We'd like stay late and make mixes and stuff and so like. Yeah. I was there a lot, and so, like, I, you know, brought Jill there once because Lele was, like, a super fan of Jill, like, really loved Jill's work. And then I was like, yeah, we should, like, work on a book, you know, and then we're supposed to be working on the archive, but Jill wants to work on this book, and then Jill wants to go to Maine, so then Jill fires me, and I'm working on this book for Jill. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was just, like, all so hilarious. Um, But, yeah, so then I'm working on this book for Jill with 8-Ball, and Jill's not paying me to be her assistant anymore, and then we had to do, like, a... Then I had to do, like, a and a with her at the book fair, and I was just like, God, I fucking, oh, you're the best and the worst, Jill. Wow. Um, yeah. But, you know, in hindsight, I really appreciate the, like, experience that Jill gave me, and I really loved Jill and appreciated Jill's work. And I really wish that um, she hadn't passed so soon and that her and I could have had, like, some sort of, like, reconciliation. But also, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it does make for a great story. Yeah. What did her archive ever, what happened? I have no idea. All I know is that her, um, I know her, who she loathed, her, like, one of her only living relatives was, like, this cousin of hers who she absolutely could not stand. And she would talk so much shit about how she was like, I can't stand her. She's just, she's like, I can't stand us. She's like, why does she have to be the only living relative? I can't stand this lady. She's like, how are we, how are we blood? I don't know how we're blood. (laughs) You know. Um, And so she... I'm pretty sure is in control of her archive. And I think there's a lot of other things that went on around that and went on around Jill that are like, you know, I don't really know whole gravity of the situation, but I think it was honestly like not, uh, not handled well. And I don't think Jill's life was handled well towards the end. And I actually went to her, um, the like memorial that they had for her. And it was also just super weird because I was like, why isn't Bridget here? And I was just thinking, I was like, Bridget's not here. And I was like, maybe Bridget died. And then like, you know, and then some of, you know, some of the people who were talking, obviously, like Cheryl and Lele, like, you know, Jill really did have, like, a relationship with. But it was super, it was just a, it was just a weird scenario of just being, like, I, and I, just knowing Jill as intimately as I did, I was just, like, Jill would have fucking hated this. Yeah. And so it was really hard for me because I was there and I was just, like, you know, I was really, like, kind of emotional and was just, like, fuck. Like, I had no, like, resolve with this person that I, like, really, like, loved and respected and, like, yeah. 
you know, we never got any resolve and like that sucks. And then just being there and being like, God, and being like, I could hear her voice. It was so weird. I could like hear her talking when she was like, this is bullshit. You know what I mean? She's like, this whole fucking thing is bullshit. You know? And I was just like, God, I was like, whatever, you know, it's a part of life. She was telling you. Yeah. She was, com- she but yeah, was I, could, like, I feel now. like I could hear her being like, this is bullshit. <laughs> she was telling you. Well, you were the only person under 40 she trusted to tell. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. So, um, yeah, but so anyway, so like I'm working for Bridget at the time, you know, and then Bridget is 83 and um Bridget also like, you know, is gi- is giving me like su- like home supplies and at the time I lived in an apartment uh with this old Chinese guy Mr. Chow who like I couldn't cook there and I couldn't shower there, so I was like going to the gym to shower and I would only eat like dollar slice or steal food from grocery stores or eat food like out, you know, until uh-huh. I got until I got the job with um with uh Bridget who was like actually paying me like a like livable wage. Mm-hmm. And um so like you know <laughs> Bridget is like trying to give me like silverware and glasses and like all this stuff all the time and I'm like Bridget I literally like can't I don't need these things. I like can't have these things at home. And she's like, well, one day you'll need them, whatever. And I'm like, you know, I don't take like hardly any of it. But she's like, you need a lamp. I buy you a table. Like, you know, she's just like oh getting God. me. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then, um, you know, it gets to be winter and she's like, okay. So she's like, this week is the last week you'll be here until the spring. So during the winter, we just rest. And so she gave me like literally like a grip of money and was like, so you just rest for the next two months, you know, and then you come back in March, you know, we rest wow. for January and, and February, you know, and then um, I, she's like, you call, she basically was like, you call me when everything's thawed, you know, Whoa. and so um, I call her in March and then she was like, she was like, it's so good to hear from you. She's like, I'm, you know, it's so good to hear from you, but, but, uh, you know, she's like, I sadly, you will not be coming back to work for me. And I'm like, oh no, why? And she's like, you stole, you stole a cup from my kitchen. I was like, what? what? Yeah, I was like, what? And she's like, and I was like, Bridget, I, I've never stolen anything from you. Uh, and she's like, no, no, no. She's like, I know how many cups are in my kitchen. And you was the last person who was here. No <laughs> so, way. Yeah, and I was like, oh, no. And I, there was, like, no really, like, reasoning with it because, you know, I was just like, well, I'm just trying to, I was like, I really just want you to know that, like, I've literally, like, never stolen a cup from you, you know? And she's like, no, no, no. She's like, if you want to call me, it's okay. You can call me. We can talk. But you cannot come visit because you stole the cup from the kitchen. And I was no like, oh, way. no. And then shortly after that, I lost my phone. And then I I don't have her number and have no way of contacting her. So um, oh, I haven't talked to her since. And that was, like, 2000, maybe 17. Oh, my God. That is. It's like beyond perfect that that was how that relationship just kind of ended, though. Like weirdly, totally. Like you don't even can't even contact her. I know. I was heartbroken, honestly, at the time. I was like, "Fuck!" I was like, "Well, number one, like, what am I going to do for money?" I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and then what really I did is I got a job. Yeah. I got my job back at the library. <laughs> no way. Yeah. You went back to the library. I went back to the library because a friend of mine. I had gotten a friend a job there to replace me. And she was quitting to move to L.A. Um, you might know her. Her name's um, Emily Arimura. Do you know her? Oh, no. But you told me about her before. But she's an artist in L.A. But you, wait, you, that was, so that was the second time you got your job back. Yeah, it was. So, oh, no, it, well, it, it, was the, it was the third time I worked there. Oh, okay. Wow. 
So I quit, and then I got my job back when I came back because no one had replaced me. And then I quit again and gave my job to my friend because I was working with Jill. And uh-huh. then my friend quit to go to uh, – Emily quit to go to acupuncture school and move to Los Angeles. And um, then I replaced her. Wow. And then did you still work – do you still work there now? No. The library? No. Oh, I haven't worked there since 2017. Okay. So you were there for like another year. Well, yeah, because, you know, I, as Bridget said, send a carrier pigeon once everything thaws. I did that, you know, and then she was like, you stole a cup from me. And I was like, oh, shit. So then I worked at the library and was like still, you know, living downtown in the city. And I like worked the library again. And then I ended up working there until like the following fall. I want to say like fall, like 2017, like in like September, maybe. Mm hmm. And then I ended up quitting again because I was just like, you know, I had sort of like run its course and I was super unhappy there and it was like really wearing on my mental health. And I was like, okay, it's time for me to go. You know, I'll just figure something out. And I did. What did you do? Where did you go from there? Um, I started um, helping. I just started like just doing like just random odd jobs again. And I was like helping a friend run like a studio that was kind of just more of like a like party slash like drink and draw space type thing. It wasn't packaged like that but the reality is that's what it was you know it was like packaged as something very it was like oh it's like cooler than that and i was like we're just at a drink and draw though you know um what's drink and draw you know how people do it's like a it's like a thing people do where they're like oh like it's like you go to a bar or like a studio or like someone's house and they have they like serve wine and then like people like draw and have like a drawing party you know what i mean it was like that kind of thing Uh uh-huh um it was you know, obviously packaged a little differently and was like, a, uh, like you know, curated a little bit more to like a different audience. But like reality remains that it was a drink and draw. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I was like doing that on the side a little bit and then was just like making paintings and stuff and just like working more on my own practice and was kind of just like trying to like just make it month to month, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then I had... Um, I had given a friend a few drawings and then a curator that knew my friend had been over at their apartment and like had contacted them to be like, Hey, I really liked those like pieces that you have. And like, I wanted to know if you could give me your friend's email or something. And so like, um, Vivian Chu who works for, uh, uh, Pioneer Works, she contacted me via email. and was like, Hey, like, I really want to, I really would love to do like a visit with you. Um, and just like have like a, uh, like a talk with you and so she like came to visit and we had like a studio visit and a talk at the time I had like a like living room that w- I was that was like a sh- in a shared space I was living with a friend and we had like a third I had moved out of Mr. Chow's apartment I was living with a friend and we had a third uh it was a converted like three bedroom you know in Chinatown so we had like a third bedroom that she played video games in and smoked out the window and I just like made all my <laughs> you know, like I made all my work in. And um, so like she came to visit and she was like, yeah, I just like really think it'd be good to like do like a show. And she's like, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of like putting together a sh- like, uh, you know, a show for spring break with someone. And I would really like to work with you. And I w- she was like, do you have like an idea of a show that you would want to do? And I did have an idea so i was like yeah the spring break art fair we should clear yeah for the spring break art fair that happens here in new york and um so she was like yeah i would really like to do that if you're interested in like writing a proposal and so i wrote a you know i wrote a proposal for a show the show was called fit effects include hope nausea 
And it was all work I had primarily made about my experience in conversion therapy because in high school I was sent to conversion therapy by my parents. And so, because I grew up in a, in like a very Christian fundamentalist, like evangelical home. My parents were born again Christians um, at the time. And I grew up in Bangkok, Thailand, and my parents were missionaries. Um, Yeah. And so when I, when it was discovered that I was queer, it was not received well. (laughs) That's just how we're going to put it. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, it was not received well, and my parents, you know, contacted a conversion therapist in Thailand, and I was brought to a conversion therapy facility in Thailand. And at what um, age? Uh, I was 16. Wow. Yeah, so really intense, definitely a little bit more of intense of a subject than uh, Jill. Um, <laughs> but probably but yeah. involved. So a lot of the, like, art that I was making at the time and that I had, like, made even previously to that was, as I said, like, primarily a lot of what I do is about building a visual language for myself, you know. And um, so I had made a lot of work uh, around that subject and had done a lot of writing. And actually the title came from a zine that I made that was all poems that I had written that I – there's probably only, like – I mean, I had printed it at 8-Ball and gave it away to people. I think I sold some on, like – the internet, you know, I mean, there's probably like 20 copies that exist. I'm not even sure if I have one, but I might have the master copy somewhere. But anyway, I made a zine that had a lot of writings about the subject uh, and poems about the subject that was called Side Effects Include Hope, Nausea. And so I wanted to make a show about that. And it was, um, yeah, it was primarily drawing drawings and paintings and then two sculptures that were chairs that I had made. And then I also had to... Um, ceramic sculptures that I had made into reserved signs. And so the idea is like all of the nine uh, pieces that I had made were like about my experience and with this, with conversion therapy and also like its effect on me and also its effect on my relationship with my parents and I and my family. And I had made two chairs, one to represent my mother and one to represent my father, and I made these ceramic reserved signs that were placed on the chairs. And the idea was with the sculpture was that, like, you know, also the, like, hilar- not the hilarity, but the absurdity that, like, how perfect it was that, like, Spring Spring Break was doing their show in the old Vanity Fair office. So it's like you're in an office with, like, you know, honestly very similar carpeting to the to the carpeting of the, like, facility that I was sent to, you know. Wow. And then having these, like, seats, you know, and the idea was that, like, this is the, like, what has come to fruition from, like, that experience. That, like, although my parents, you know, um you know, we're not there for me at that time. It's like they're also not able to come to that show because they live so far away, you know what I mean, on the other side of the world. And so, you know, I've, like, made the work about that experience and then I made the sculpture, you know, as, like, sort of a representation of, like, my parents' inability to materialize at a time in which I needed them, you know. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I still understand and, you know, that they are people and people make mistakes, you know. So it's kind of like a cathartic experience for me, but also was, like, pretty overwhelming because I was in somewhat of a hermitage before that. Like I said, I had only just recently gotten an iPhone. You know what I mean? I think I got an iPhone in 2016. So like, you know, I didn't, I had been in sort of a hermitage and was working with these like elderly women and working at a library and, um, I really wanted to make that show, had like a lot of conviction for my, to make that show, but also was not aware of what the response was going to be or of like 
how much I was going to have to like publicly speak on a very sensitive subject and trauma myself, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, we did the show and the show was received really well. I actually sold everything. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I, and I had quit my job at the library. I was working these odd jobs. I had just sold a like bunch of work and like, you know, was feeling really good about it, you know? And, um, so yeah, but, you know, the double sword of that is that, like, you know, it was received really well. I really, like, loved uh, – that was a labor of love for me. I really loved making that work, and it was really important for me. But um, it also opened me up in a way and made me very visible in a way that was I was not prepared for at the time. Right. And, um, you know, but I at the time I had only just recently made an Instagram, maybe, like, the a year before that or something, you know. Okay. And so – and it was also private because I didn't – really want I wasn't really ready to like share things with people so you know there's only like a hundred you know a couple hundred people that are looking at it you know and yeah. I had a friend a friend of the time a queer friend who like worked in PR and was like I think if you're going to do the show you should make your Instagram public and like kind of like filter it a little bit and maybe like you know like you know whatever it was being like you know PR like you should probably like be like you don't even have a website like how are people going to contact you you know what I mean yeah yeah and so I did that and then basically like overnight you know what I mean it went it, or like over the period of like a week, however long the, I think it's a week long um, fair, but over the period of like a week, you know, it went from essentially me having only like, you know, a few hundred, couple hundred, maybe like a thousand people, like under a thousand, you know what I mean? Like three years people looking at my stuff to all of a sudden there was like, you know, like 5,000, 6,000 people on my Instagram. Wow. Wow. You know, which was like great but also like super overwhelming and like I like I said I just wasn't really prepared for like that level of visibility or or exposure at the time but right. like was was very you know I hadn't really thought again going back to like our uh, the conversation we had earlier about like thinking of your like best case scenario or like your utopia uh, instead of thinking of the worst case scenarios only and at the time I was only thinking about the worst case scenario so right. Um, I hadn't really kind of like thought about or processed the idea of like it being received well and like me selling all of it and people being like really excited and wanting to talk to me and people wanting to like talk to me about conversion therapy and about my parents and about my experience and like about my experience being like a, you know, like missionary kid growing up and about what it, it's like to be a third, someone who grew up as a third culture kid, which is a term I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but, um, there's some writing about it and like maybe a books about it now, but at the time, you know, they, people like me, I get referred to as like a third culture kid because essentially our home culture and the culture that we grow up in, neither of which really belong to us because I, you know, I grew up primarily, almost exclusively primarily in Bangkok, you know, but I am not a Thai national. I'm not of Thai descent. I am a like, you know, uh, actually Kashubian, which is like a nomadic people group from Poland. But for okay. the sake of this, like a Polish white person, you know what uh -huh. I mean, who's like was born in Iowa and was raised in Thailand. And so and Paul, your parents were from Iowa or they lived parents, in Iowa before. I, well, they were from Iowa and Wisconsin. So Midwesterners, yeah, they call yeah. Midwesterners. Yeah. But they call a person like me a third culture kid because essentially our existence um, creates a is a synthesis of our home culture and upbringing and the culture that we live within and that like, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, raises us. So, and then there's sort of like a product out of that, which is like who a person like me ends up being, which is essentially like a third culture outside of either American culture or Thai culture. Right, right, right. 
so you were a third so you're speaking about that you're speaking about the conversion thing and you're suddenly having all these conversations that you weren't even really because oh, you probably thought like the work is the, the work is the conversation but then all of a sudden you're at an art fair talking to all these people yeah, exactly. And then even afterwards, I really wish I could remember their names, but I can't. I, it's escaping me. But the two um, the two people who run the fair mm-hmm. uh, ended up coming to me after the fact when we were, like, deinstalling everything, like, when the fair was over. And we're like, hey, we just really wanted to say, like, we really, like, loved what you did and really appreciated that you, like, you know, like, wrote in to even do this and, like, um, you know, like, were participating. And they were, like, actually, like, like, we just wanted to tell you, like, you're one of, like, ten people that we essentially, like, immediately greenlit and, like, built the entire, like, because there's, like, a theme every time, you know what I mean? And the the theme of of the fair that that I contributed, which is why this show was important to do there and why I felt like it was, like, you know, uh, like, needed to happen or was, Uh like, serendipitous that it happened is because it was about what does it mean to be a stranger, you know? Like what is what is being a stranger versus what is belonging, and so, you know, I that show that you know theme resonates with me and with that show because the whole idea of conversion therapy, which is an intellectual rape practice, um, in my opinion, I've yeah, I'm the only person that I've heard call it that, but that's what I call it. I believe that conversion therapy is intellectual rape, and yeah. so, you know, um, that the whole purpose of intellectual rape like that is to um, make the person so unfamiliar in their in their own identity and sexuality and body that they are no longer uh, themselves and are essentially a stranger to their to their actual you know like uh, to their actual divinity or their actual like person you know right yeah and so, you know, they basically were like, yeah, we really, like, appreciate that you, like, participated in the show, And which is funny in hindsight. It's always funny in hindsight because when I wrote the, you know, when I wrote the proposal and, like, there's, like, a three-part acceptance process where they're, like, you know, one month, they're, like, you're accepted to round two, you're accepted to round three, you're accepted to do your show, you know? Okay. Yeah. And, like, the whole time I'm, like, super, like, I mean, I better not, like, put, you know, I better not put too much, like, pressure on this because, like, they're probably going to say no. You know what I mean? Like, you're, like, telling yourself, like, yeah, there's no way they're going to want to do this. Like, this is too far out there. Like, whatever, you know. Um, And so, yeah, uh, it was, like, great feedback, honestly, because they were, like, yeah, we actually, like, built the show around you and, like, nine other people that we, like, essentially immediately were, like, yes, this is, like, a yes and, like, needs to be in the show thematically, like, you know, which I thought was, like, you know, was very, like, humbling to hear at the time and was also super important for me to hear that, like, you know, someone responded that well to, like, what I was doing. Do you wish on some level, this doesn't really, I'm sorry, this is a stupid question. Does it, do you wish that they would have just told you up front that they had, like, greenlit you, that they, like, made you wait through those? Oh, no, not at all. Okay. Because everybody, everybody needs to, like, the process, it should be fair, you know, and even if that was the case, you know, it's, like, they still had to do the process of, like, even if they were, like, yeah, that's a yes, you know what I mean, from the beginning. Yeah. It's, like, they still need to, to be fair and be, like, you know, that's it's fair, you know. You and also, like, even though they yet. told me that, you know, yeah. like, that could have maybe been, like, a little different than how they, like, you know, than how it was, like, um, you know, regurgitated to me. Like, who knows if that's, like, the true reality of it, you know. Right, right. 
it was really important, but it was really meaningful when they did share that with you. But yes, it was it was really meaningful that they did share that with me, and it was super important for me. And I wish I could remember their names, but um, thanks to them if they end up listening to this. Yeah, um, for sure. For yeah. Sure. Did you get to live for a little bit off of the, um, or for a while from the the, the spring break fair? Yeah, well, because I did the fair, and then it also, like, put me in a place and made me visible enough where, like, other people wanted to, like, come and, like, see the work and do visits and stuff. And uh, some other, th- you know, I ended up getting a grant from the um, Peter Reed Foundation because of that show um, yeah. in the following year. And that, like, you know, allowed me to have, like, a full studio away from home, which was amazing. Shout out to the Peter Reed Foundation. Right. And, um uh, yeah, and uh, so yeah, you know, it was uh, it was it was, in it, you know, in hindsight, there's definitely and always in hindsight, there's ways that we think that we could like handle things better, but mm-hmm. you know, the reality is, is like, is like, you know, we don't really have like a ability to change the past. We can only like learn from it and move forward. You know, a hundred percent. So yeah, so I was the Peter Reed Foundation gave me a grant. Shout out them. It was really yeah. great. And then I was just working in the studio and. Um, just like skating a lot and working on my own shit and that's when like COVID happened. You and I have talked about this before but I will say that one thing that you did do, that description I feel like it leaves out this epic artwork that you got to make with the glue video and your with your collaborators and everything last year. That True. was sort of a product of during and the interview that you all did with and Thrasher with Todd Jordan that was um, very much happened during the COVID 2020 both those things, right? Yeah, well, so, I mean, strangely enough, most of most of all of that happened in the same like two week span. That's amazing. Wait, the video got the video got made in the two weeks too. I mean, the majority of it, yeah. Oh, the parts where you filmed where you were all together. Uh huh. Yeah, the majority of it was like uh, over two weeks in August. I mean, we had filmed stuff separately over the summer. You know what I mean? There were like um, with where it was just like you know. You know, we were all just filming separately, and then, the, uh, you know, it, in our respective places, Leo had moved upstate, and I was still living here in Bed-Stuy, and Cher mm-hmm. was living in San Francisco, or in uh, Oakland at the time, and, uh-huh. yeah, we just all kind of, like, separately were fil- going out filming on our own, and then, you know, we just really wanted to, like, end the project together, and so we, you know, Cher ended up kind of, like, just taking a risk and t- getting a flight out here and stayed, oh. you know, at the time, I had a studio and wasn't working at home, so I had we had a spare bedroom, and so mm-hmm. she just stayed here and was here for two weeks, and we just, yeah, we went out and had a good time and just tried to stay focused, and by the end of the two weeks, we had filmed pretty much everything that we wanted to to, like, finish off the video, and um, had went upstate where Leo was living, and Todd also was living up there who did the interview, and so mm-hmm. we, yeah, handled all of it in a two-week span, and... um you know, which I think is kind of like, it's pretty uncommon for videos for that to happen. But I also think it's pretty uncommon for people to make a video like we made, which, you know, <laughs> and people objectively, I think, always look at videos in this way of it's supposed to be like a ton of hard work and it's supposed to like be the craziest shit that you can possibly do. And yeah. I mean, I've tried, I've tried and have filmed parts like that before, but mm-hmm. for this, I was more interested in, in, just sort of going with the, like, you know, going with the flow and just kind of enjoying the process of filming and trying things that were hard if it came up, but also not really, like, putting too much, like, thought into it. I kind of just wanted to film, like, a fun part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of how it sort of 
came uh, came out, I think, is, you know, then I just sort of sat down and edited the video. I already had kind of like a loose, like, you know, like screenplay, if you will, of it, you know, <laughs> like I had bones already to like what I wanted uh-huh. it to look like. And then Sharon and Leo also like gave their in- input into like their parts and were down with like how I had sort of organized it and the songs that I picked for like, you know, like me and some of the other things and, you know, share picture on music and me and Leo like picked a song together and, yeah, I think um, I really just wanted to make a video, and I think the two of them also just really wanted to make a video that just, you know, felt representative of, of fun and, you know, taking it seriously in the sense of, like, making it happen and, like, committing to the, like, you know, the process and the end result, but not really, like, being too, like, crazy about the you know, like, about the process or, like, what the footage looked like. I mean, some of the clips, and it's funny because now that it's on YouTube, you know, I, I went into the comments once, and then I was like, I have to get out of here. I can't go back into this zone. <laughs> it's, it's, too, it's too dangerous. It's a minefield. But, yeah. Um, yeah. It, was on, it was off YouTube. When we, the last time we spoke a couple months ago, there was, like, a licensing issue with one of the songs. So that's what yeah. we're, we're or, no, well, so the issue The issue was, at first it only went to Thrasher. They got all the song rights, but then it was being flagged because um, Cher used, we did like a montage that Cher wanted to do of of her um, giving her administering her hormone shot that she takes weekly, and uh, they flagged it as drug use. Mm. So yeah. then there was like a there was like I don't know if it was like a, one of the um, music companies. What do you call the music? I don't know the if it was one of the. I don't. I don't know if it was to do with licensing of the music or YouTube itself. But someone throughout the process of licensing for YouTube had flagged it as like inappropriate drug use, and I think now it's still even is like an eighteen plus video technically and C seventeen. Do you um, think that it? Do you think that they really think it's drug use or it's a way to use that kind of ruling as a um, discrimination or like uh, I think it's both I think um, I think it's not as nefarious as a person as a person viewing hormones you know like hormone treatment as like drug use you know and like equating it to like heroin I think it's more of an algorithm seeing a person without any like verbal confirmation of what it is, you know, like using a, using a needle in a video visually. And then I think, you know, it probably doesn't help that we named the video smut. So <laughs> I forgot. It's so funny. I always forget that the video is called that. And then that, yeah, that, yeah, that, it seems like that could fuck with their algorithm. Well, initially, Cher and I had also kind of like thought it would be cool to to sell literal smut when the video came out, and like she had chopped off her hair, and we like vacuum sealed her hair, and I had like a you know like dirt like dirty like skated like gyms like you know like a like high, like high high like high knee like gym socks, you know what I mean? That I had like drawn uh-huh. on that we like uh-huh. were like oh we're just gonna like vacuum seal these socks, you know, for, like, people who are into, like, sniffing socks and, like, vacuum seal, like, Why your you- hair. Well, it just, uh, I mean, it seems maybe a, a little, like, dangerous. I was like, well, what if, you know, I was kind of like, well, what if somebody is, like, really out to get you and they buy the hair and then, like, do, you know, do some witchy shit with the hair and then ah. you're, like, X or something, you know. 
we we got a little paranoid, and so we decided we like opted out of doing that. But that was part of like the naming of it. Is like I want to, you know, I initially was like I want to call a video <laughs> this because like you know we're the majority of the people in the video are queer or queer and trans adjacent. So it was like so like I like the idea of it being like you know from the like the like you know straight societal perspective that like it's smutty you know to be. Yeah making a video like this, but also the idea of actually incorporating literal, like what people would literally consider smut by definition. You were talking about making the video and, you know, in context of the fact you weren't trying to make like the hardest part you've ever filmed, and but it was more about the energy of you all being together and making the video and stuff like that. How much were you thinking about the fact that it would still be super, I don't know, the word like progressive, Culturally or socially or, yeah, politically. Even. Yeah, know? I mean, I mean, I knew to, I, I mean, I knew to a degree it, it would just in general because queer and trans people by nature are, you know, or not by nature, but by societal standards are essentially made to be political. Like we are yeah. politicized by existing because our existence is, our existence being valid is, for, you know, like societal reasons of, of a conversation in that way. So yeah. I, I knew that just from my own experience and from my own, like, you know, like reading of, you know, the past and my own experience with like the present, like I knew that to a certain degree it, it would be politicized or viewed as political just because that's the conversation right now. I mean, like we're constantly like, arguing and fighting about like resources and rights to and the right to be like you know valid existing members of society because i think to a certain degree it's like you know queer and trans people even now are still kind of like we're still i would say viewed as myths you know even in the way that we're like are viewed as less than and are given less rights than other people and you know historically have also been treated as less than human because of that history and then because of now the like current climate that is like oftentimes you know like objectifying i think it asserts this idea that queer and trans people are just myths that yeah. we're not necessarily even currently existing by like the like current societal lens where i still think that we're not necessarily viewed as people <laughs> yeah i was struck by when, or I was thinking about this when we were talking before about the fact of like when I like I grew up skateboarding and was exposed to so many things through skateboard videos for the first time. You know, the first depictions I saw of like all kinds of things were through skateboard videos because I was living in like a rural place and a teenager and I would get skate videos which were filmed, you know, in all different locations around, you know, whatever. And I was just thinking about like the fact of like so many younger people right now will be exposed to see, you know, for example, Cher, you know, shooting her, her hormones will be the first time a lot of kids will get to see that and how beautiful and fucking rad that is, you know, especially like the way it is in the video. It's just like, to me, I, I saw like that montage as so celebratory of empowerment and agency and identity. You know what I mean? And yeah, I think, um, I guess what I what I what I really am I think I'm trying to get at in terms of the like 
the like mythic uh, the like myth of it is um is that I don't know what year it happened, but I do know that other people also feel this that there was a like cultural switch in which like marginalized groups were were given and actively sought out to be used for on platforms to to not necessarily like express themselves but to show that against all odds they existed still and to sort of like in a in often like a trauma porny way like divulge their like you know like divulge our histories and like you know and sort of like prove this like made to prove this weird point that like see like we we like exist against like all these odds and i think that you know, I think that Leo, me, and Cher at all had our own experiences with that and with doing that. You know, that sort mm-hmm. of just like exploitation, what I feel is kind of like an exploitation of identity in a way. And I think that we went into making the video not really wanting to like think too much about it or like make it about like identity in that way, but more make it about like our authentic representations of self in a way that felt like fun and authentic to us. Yeah, it must have felt really exciting that this was the first time the three of you were doing something together and also you're like pooling together all of your powers to make a a really genuine you're like publishing a genuine document. Yeah, I agree. I mean I think uh, it I think calling it a document is a really accurate way of like describing kind of what I wanted it to come out and I think we all kind of were looking at it is um as uh, yeah, as more of it being kind of like a, doc, a document of a period and of the like process of like making something together that was greater than ourselves. Yeah, and really, and something that was focusing more on like showcasing like like you know personality and ability and joy and like not so much focusing on the like you know even though it is in a way like inherently political like not really giving into the like the like politics of it so much. Because uh-huh. I think even in the politics of it, it's like there's this certain like push that when you release a skate video part or a video that it has to be like up to some like, you know, n- like uh, some invisible standard of like what things are supposed to like look like or be like instead of it being about, um, you know, people's individual like personal standards for like what they want to put out or what their idea is for like a you know like a a part or a show you know right 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 that's really interesting we that is i like the way you just described that that phenomenon and i think we were talking about we have spoken in the past about the idea that like right now there's sort of a bending of that there's more of an not like an acceptance but you're seeing more people putting out things that are sort of, they're not adhering to that anymore, right? Yeah, I think there's just a little more room now. I think people have gotten tired of seeing, I mean, I think at a certain point, it's me personally, and I think this resonates with other people, I get tired of just seeing the exhibition of brute strength. Yeah. There's only so much weight that I can watch a person lift before it's all just (laughs) weightlifting. Totally. <laughs> totally. Totally. Or as or as I like to say, mushily. 
This is my favorite time ever in skateboarding. <laughs> yeah, great. I love you know because it's it's like yeah, but it's but both both things are true, and I think that um yeah, I I think of it as like yeah, it got to the point where it's like okay, the most stairs happened, the most technical whatever you know, it got to some point where now it's like okay, it was proven it could happen. Yeah, which is also cool and fun yeah. for me sometimes. Like, there are yeah. people who, like, you know, people would probably not think I'm a fan of or think that I enjoy watching their footage. But there are people who are just, like, you know, like, insanely good at, like, the brute strength athleticism of skating. And that's, like, enjoyable to watch sometimes. But, like, sometimes I'd rather watch, like, you know, someone, you know, there's people I'd rather watch, like, on camera together, like, laughing and, like, jumping off of a roof, you know? hundred percent. And I also don't want to count out. I mean, I don't know anyone who's listening to this thing, like actually has, you know, maybe we'll have some context of of your skateboarding or what a picture of you like on a skateboard looks like, but you're like deeply gnarly skateboarder. I mean, like when you say you've done video parts that are like hard before, it's like, like really, like really crazy intense. Holy shit. I can't believe that just happened stuff. And I just want to sort of acknowledge, like, you're speaking from the standpoint of you're someone who's, like, done, you've done that time. You know what I'm saying? So it's, like, for you, or I, at least to me, I perceive anyways, you've, like, put in those hours doing that kind of stuff on some level. So for you to talk about it from this place, you're, the standpoint you're coming from, I think, is significant. Does that make sense? Or Yeah, well, I think it's kind of like, you know, with with, like, any sort of medium, it's, sometimes it's more interesting to see a person that can do anything, choose to do something specific. Yeah. Or that has the capacity in in your mind, like in your imagination, they have the capacity to do anything. It's like seeing a person who maybe, you know, could make like the most like, you know, hyper real, like representational painting and then seeing them paint sort of like a, you know, like, you know, like mildly like abstract like landscape and you're like, oh, I love that painting way better, you know? Yeah. But you also in part, I think, like it because you know they have the capacity to do something different, but that it's a choice. Yeah. And it speaks to, I mean, I think, yeah, there's a, there's, there, um, I had, I studied drums and I had a drum teacher and he, uh, I studied drums with this free jazz guy named Barry Altschul. He was like in the 70s, like a big free jazz guy. And I, when I w- started playing with him, I was like, I didn't know what it was going to be like, but I just wanted it to be like fully just out free jazz, out whateverness. And he was like, had me doing like rudiments and drum, really like technical drum teaching stuff. And I was like, Barry, this is like, but, and he's like, Brendan, if you want to be able to play anything, you have to actually be able to play anything. And I would, yeah, I would, I think for that, uh, skating, the, the analogy of that to skating is flat ground. And I think I've yeah. just always really enjoyed, and there's been times I've lived in places as a kid where I, you know, cause I moved around a lot. You know, there were some times during those periods where like I was in living, you know, I lived in Kansas for a year when I was like 13 or or 14 or something. So like, you know, I, there was a year where I could see absolutely nothing except for, like, the same two-stair and just flat run out a tennis court because half the roads were dirt. So, you know, I think that it's just, you know, that sort of building block of just, like, you know, being really interested. And I've also been always really interested in just, like, the, the like, flat ground 
the like basic aspect of flat ground skating and how a person with just themselves and the skateboard and just flat ground can be interested. And if you can, if you can, in my opinion, if I'm interested in watching you do like just flat ground flip tricks or something, then mm-hmm. like I'm mostly going to probably like anything you do. Yeah. Yeah, fully. Fully. You said something earlier that I thought you, I really liked how you articulated this. What I feel like you were saying was that there's an appreciation now of people, like beyond the idea of doing. Oh yeah, there's there's just more space for that. I mean, I I don't know if we're we're like maybe it's there. I don't know. You know, I mean, so like involved in my in like existence, so I I don't yeah. I can't really objectively like t- like look at it from like an outsider standpoint because I'm not outside of it. But yeah. I do think that there is more space for people to like you know be able to there's more space for people to mess around with ideas now because you don't have to be meeting some invisible standard anymore yeah and there's an audience i think it's a function like to me i mean i'm kind of opposite of you because i'm not like functioning in the skate industry and I'm sort of just taking it all in. I'm just like strictly audience, you know? And I think I, to me, it seems like it's a function of a few things, but not the least of which are the fact that people aren't the, the people that get to publish, you know, documentation of skateboarding are not only people that skate for, you know, big companies and have like this whole, machine behind them that's making sure they're putting out the quote-unquote like top-of-the-line performance. It's like people, anyone can publish stuff on Instagram and reach just as many people instantly. Yeah, exactly. So it's one of those things where it's like the gatekeepers. Like, I love that Thrasher still exists. I love, so I think I said this too before, like I love so much that Thrasher still exists and as mainly like a video publishing platform, you know, that like they publish the glue video and that every time I see a kid that may or may not even get off skateboarding wearing a Thrasher t-shirt, that t-shirt paid for them to publish the glue video. You know, like I'm totally happy with how Thrasher is. Yeah, I, I'd agree. In, in the thing now. But then it's also so bad that it's like they're kind of responding to just Instagram and they're responding to people putting out videos that aren't published by Thrasher and I, I I love all the different channels and possibilities right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of different uh, channels to operate on and to like you know have output on and to you know build and sort of like create like structures for yourself with. But yeah, yeah, and I then, think. Um, go on. Well, I was sorry. I was just going to say, and then the other thing that I think leads to kind of it all opening up is then given that, you know, people that are receptive to different things, like someone who, you know, maybe wouldn't be or wouldn't want to be, maybe someone who maybe in the past could have felt alienated by the fact of like, okay, well, I'm never going to be, I don't know, some like skating some crazy technical line at Love Park for a DC Shoes video or something like that would have felt like, well, why why would I even, you know, go after it that hard? But I just love skateboarding. Now they're seeing other people who, you know, they can relate to more and they're getting fucking psyched 
And so it's like the audience is there, and then that's making people more excited. And I feel like you see it just opened up the whole thing in this way that I think is so beautiful and exciting. And you're seeing stuff that's, yeah. To me, it's most like expressive sound and skateboarding that I've seen since I, I started skating in like the late 80s. And to me, this is like by far the most like expressive time in skateboarding, I think. Yeah, I think that there's just more room now. I mean, we'll see where things go because, you know, this is something that's the beginning of that like space even existing. So, you know, the, you know, the potential of people actually having like, you know, real resources and like their name on shoes and their name on boards and, you know, people just, you know, the, the, that's, the real test, you know what I mean, in the future is if, is if those resources get, like, really brought about to people for their, like, you know, not necessarily for their, like, check mark representation for a brand, but for people's authentic presentations of their own abilities. That's interesting, yeah. But also... So there's definitely the space, but then I also, I always have to think about it in terms of, I or not always, but I often end up thinking about things in terms of the real incremental change is when people are allowed to like be in positions of power and have careers and have, I try to look at it as an observer. And I think that's really the, the the industry responding to the like community output community, just being like skateboarding. Mm -hmm. And then within that, you know, there being all the different, you know, types of community there but you know the the industry response to that output is what like really will create like longevity in the in the change of things you know in the change of in the change within that space for people to like you know have a, a, a career in skating outside of just the like brute strength like ideology that we were talking about so I think that's the that's the real like measure that's the the real longevity measurement is is that because without that things just end up being you know uh it just ends up being a a blip in a way because outside of their own volition you know without resources to incentivize people you know cuz you know people we can only get so far alone you now yeah. and so there's only so much a person can because even though energy is infinite, we are finite beings. So there's only so much that that a finite being can do on their own volition by themselves without the incent without being incentivized by resources or you know like resources being like you know uh, money or like trips or like product. You know what I mean? That incentivizes them to be like, I should keep going because, like, I'm getting a response for what I'm doing, you know. And then there's definitely different, like, levels to which each person is capable of, like, on their own volition, like, pushing something, you know. But and I think it's just time and money, too. Like, if they're yeah. having to have, like, a really grueling day job, they're not going to be able to. Yeah, do, for sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's the that's going to be the real, like, test is um, now that that space is there for people to be, I think, a little more loose and creative and intentional in in skateboarding as like a, you know, like a 
like a performance or art form practice, you know, I think they're the the real test will be like how the how it's responded to by the industry. Work. Work. Well, I, we've spoken about it before, but the um, I you know I was really super moved by the interview that you did with Thrasher. Also, and I, not to you know I want to be clear, Thrasher is not just something that publishes videos that also is still a print magazine and it's rad because they published you you and Sharon Leo and um, our friend Todd Jordan conducted or at sort of led or hosted this conversation with the three of you um, and it was in the magazine and then they put it online which is fucking rad and anybody can read it online and stuff I think it was incredible and it came out on the same time as the video and so to me like glue in later 2020 put out this video smut and put out this really 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 awesome interview that i would encourage anyone to read especially because it's online now where you outlined kind of how glue began and how you all came to collaborate and your ethos and things and i think it's super inspiring and beautiful and then you dropped boards right like yeah and some yeah we dropped boards and some shirts and stuff we dropped like we did like a first drop of like products yeah, and I guess I'm, I guess the question I'm like building up to is like how, you know, it's a couple months later. How was your, how did you feel about the reception? It seems like really people were like super, super, super excited about it, and it was yeah. It seems like a it's or it felt really positive. Um, I mean we we sold out of everything in like like it felt like a matter of hours. Honestly, I mean it might have yeah. been like a couple of days or something but like yeah pretty much instantly we like sold out of like everything that we made so um which i think pretty good metric that like the response was positive i guess so Uh you know i mean because obviously like the people around me that i know and my like you know loved ones and friends and family were like very you know hyped and you know had like a lot of positive feedback but you know that's i think kind of again back to the thing of like the space is there but the like real response is of the like you know the industry so like yeah. you know like the like response was pretty positive i think from like people because we got everything went so <laughs> by that that's the metric and it went well did did um are, are you all working on the i know you are you must be working on the next thing it's fucking gnarly starting like a brand because you all are it independently right yeah, we are. Um, we've had some people reach out to, like, help us, which I think in the future we're going to have some, like, people helping, which is sick. Right. Uh, yeah. It's so, the, uh, intense. it's so intense, right? How much work it is? It's a lot of work, you know, and I knew it was going to be a lot of work. Um, but, wow, you know, it's a lot of work. But, yeah, we have some more stuff coming out, like, actually very soon. Um, oh, rad. Yeah. 